Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Martin Ganston about Tajika astrology, which is medieval Arabic astrology translated into Sanskrit, and his new translation of a 17th century uh, Sanskrit text on this topic. Uh, so hey, Martin, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to finally have you on. I've been meaning to for a number of years now, especially to talk about your earlier work. You're the author of one of the most well-respected books on primary directions, uh, but we're doing this topic first as your first appearance on the show because you've actually spent, I think, a large part of the last 10, year, 10 <laughs> years focused on this topic, right? Mm, yeah, you can say that. Okay. And just really quickly, the uh, date is Thursday, August 20th, 2020, starting at 8.06 a.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this should be the 268th episode of the show. So um, you translated a book recently, and it's titled The Jewel of Annual Astrology, a Parallel Sanskrit-English Critical Edition of Bala Bhadra's Hayana Ratna. Is it, am I pronouncing that correct? That's fairly accurate, yeah. <laughs> close, close enough. Close enough. Um, so let's first, before we get to the book, actually talk about your background a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so you uh, have a doctorate, and your background is in the history of religion, and you're a Sanskrit scholar, but you focus, or you tend to focus on astrological traditions, right? Yes, you could say that. I've I've got two main areas of, of research interest, which is Indic religions on the one hand, that is Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, uh, <clears throat> and then um, divinatory traditions, especially astrology. Um, but um, And I'm, I'm not just interested in Indian astrology, I'm interested in astrological traditions uh, around the globe. But uh, since I am a Sanskritist, uh, as you mentioned, and I also focus on Indic religions, I do have a sort of combined uh, competence that few people have. Uh, most historians of astrology are not Sanskritists and vice versa, which means that I, I have tended to, to work a lot on um, astrology in India uh, or in South Asia, simply because uh, there aren't that many people doing it. Yeah, one of the main people in the 20th century was David Pingree, because he was one of those few people that had all the language skills and knew Sanskrit and ancient Greek and Arabic and um, Persian and and like ten or fifteen different languages, but that's also something that you have a strong background in as well as ancient languages. Well, I my primary classical language is Sanskrit. Um, I, apart from that, I I know a little bit of uh, medieval Latin, a little bit of Koine Greek, and. I, I can read a bit of Pali if necessary, but there are no astrological texts in Pali, so that's that's irrelevant. Uh, I don't read Arabic or Persian, um, which you might think would be a problem working with the Indian reception of, of Persian Arabic astrology. But uh, the the period I focused on in the 17th century, by that time, uh, Tajika astrology had been around in India for about 400 years, and they were already drawing exclusively on other Sanskrit sources. So they weren't actually, Balabhadra wasn't really reading Persian or Arabic texts. And it seems he didn't even know, it wasn't even clear that Persian and Arabic were two different languages. They were just, you know, foreign 
foreign tongues. So, um, or is it was, rather, it was all Persian to him because he was living in a Persian-speaking milieu uh, at the court. Okay. So, uh, <clears throat> so well, I, well, I, I haven't well, had talk. to work with with that sort of material. Oh, sure. Sorry. Well, let's talk about that. Let's jump into the book. So, mm -hmm. okay. um, the new book that you just published—it literally mm -hmm. just came out this month. Um, it's titled "The Jewel of Annual Astrology: A Parallel Sanskrit-English Critical Edition of Balabhadra's Hayanaratna." Um, it was published by the academic publisher Brill. But one of the things that was interesting is that they published it and released it first on August third as a free ebook that could be downloaded for free on their website. As an open access publication, and then they also published a print book on August sixth. So um, that's that was kind of unique and caught my eye right away because usually Brill books, uh, some of them are very expensive and sort of can be harder to get. But um, why was it released? Why did they publish this partially as a as a free online PDF? Well, because I requested it, and oh, that's uh, all you have to do is just request. <laughs> no, it's it's not. It's okay. not. They they demand a, a fairly hefty fee to do that, um, and I, as I couldn't pay it out of my own pocket, I I went to the uh, the funding body that was funding my research in the first place. Uh, I was doing this as uh, part of a three year project with a colleague. Uh, the whole project was called it's a long title. It was called the um, the Hindu reception of Perso-Arabic traditions of knowledge and the role of Jainism in cultural transmission. I think so. So my colleague is a Jain studies spe specialist. Uh, so he was looking at the the specifically at the role of the Jains um, in this context, and I was looking at the um, um, the reception of um, Perso-Arabic astrology specifically. So it was funded. Um, we were doing this at Lund University in Sweden, uh, but it was actually funded by one of the two main funding bodies here in Sweden for um, research in the humanities. Uh, and uh, when the the when I had a contract with Brill, I approached them, um, uh, the funding body, and and said, "This is this is the way it is. It's going to be published by Brill. It's going to cost." So much, <laughs> roughly, uh, unless you want to make it open access, and and they said yes, we're all for open access. So there was a bit of a negotiation, and finally they paid Brill a whacking great sum of money, uh, <laughs> and Brill made it uh, first of all made it open access, but also uh, reduced the the price of the hardback version quite substantially. Mm. If you look at at other. Uh, Brill books in the same series, they're roughly 250 euros. Yeah, uh, at least uh, uh, yeah. for uh, a thousand, thousand page book. Yeah. And this one is, I think, um, if I rem remember correctly, 75 or 80, uh, or 80 uh, euros. Not sure, something like that. Yeah. So I just ordered it for $80 for the print version, okay. uh, which is really good. Like you said, comparable books like Abu Mashar. That translation came out from Brill a year ago, and that was three hundred dollars US or something mm. in, in that mm. area. So, yeah, um, right. so Charles this is Burnett's, a, yeah, uh, yeah, Charles Burnett uh, mm. Burnett's translation. Mm. 
So um, yeah, so this book came out. Um, it's a thousand-page book. It's a critical edition where you have the Sanskrit text on the left and an English translation on the right. Mm. And the work you are translating was written in 1649. And what's the official title? It's called Hayana Ratna. So Hayana means, uh, as a noun, it means a year. As an adjective, it means yearly or annual. Uh, and astrology is sort of implied. Uh, and from the context. And the Ratna means jewel or treasure. So the jewel or the treasure of annual brackets, astrology brackets. Okay, brilliant. And um, I'll put a link to it where people can go to the order page, either to order the print version or to download the PDF in the description below this video or on the podcast website for people listening to the audio version. Mm -hmm. um, so it was written in 1649, and one of the things that's interesting that caught my eye about that date is that makes um, Balabhadra roughly, pretty much exactly a contemporary with William Lilly, who wrote Christian astrology within a, a few years of that, right? Yeah, I think it was published in 1647, the first edition. So, yeah, um, Christian astrology. So, so very okay. close in time. Yeah, so it's interesting. You can sort of read Christian astrology and realize you have one astrologer summarizing um, many centuries of astrology and trying to synthesize many centuries of astrology in London, where Lily was in 1647, publishing that. And then on the other side of the world in India was Balabhadra doing something similar and trying to summarize um, several centuries of this type of astrology in India. Yeah. So who who was Balabhadra? He was actually a court astrologer, right? He was. Uh, we don't know much about him, and that's that's generally the case with Indian authors. Uh, they're typically quite anonymous. We're we're used to you know, whenever someone publishes a book, they they go on a podcast, <laughs> or right. you know they <laughs> uh, they make sure the world knows their name and uh, all sorts of, of snippets of information about them. Uh, by contrast, uh, Indian astrologers tend to be very anonymous. I mean, uh, traditionally, um, Sanskrit authors. So um, they might add a few um, lines in the beginning, at the beginning or the end of the book, saying something about their uh, ancestry often, you know, my father's name was such and his father's name was such and, and so on. They belong to this lineage and, um, but not a whole lot more. So we know just a little bit from Balabhadra's own description. We know his, his brother's name and his father's name and, and his uncle's names and his grandfather's name and that his grandfather was from a place in North India called, um, Kanyakubja, which is called Kanoj today. So um, <clears throat> he doesn't say where he lived himself, Palabhadra, but it seems that he actually lived, that he might have been born uh, in Benares, that is Paranasi. Uh, and he wrote his book um, in a place uh, called Rajmahal, which is a fairly small place today. It was a very important place. In his time, it was the regional capital of what was then the, the Mughal province of Bengal in eastern India. So it was the seat of the governor. And uh, as you say, Balabhadra was court astrologer to this governor, who was also a prince. He was the second son of the 
then emperor of Mughal India, Shah Jahan. So the governor's name was Shah Shuja. And um, so, yeah, that's that's about what we know about Balabandra. Uh, and we know that he was, uh, we know the name of his teacher, uh, who was called Ram, Rama Daivajanya. And he was the younger brother of uh, a very well-known uh, astrologer and author whose name was Nilakantha. So Nilakantha Daivajna was also called astrologer, but to the emperor himself. Uh, not to Shah Jahan, but uh, a generation before that, uh, to the emperor Akbar. So, okay, so, so, so these he are... Moved in. So this yeah. is a time period when astrologers are serving, in India, where astrologers are serving the court um, the rulers directly and playing a, a really important role sometimes in giving advice and helping to plan or make predictions about different things. And some of the reasons why these works survive then probably are because these were prominent people in the, in the courts of some of these different empires. Yeah, well, some astrologers were. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that most astrologers were not that respected or, or you know, well placed in society. I'm sure there were uh, more or less street astrologers in India then as as there are today. But uh, there were there, there was such a thing as a court astrologer, uh, an, an official position, not just something you someone you'd sneak in the back door, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> As it's done today, yeah. Well, and, and that's a. It's just funny because it's um, not a position that's generally um, we have a lot of today in any official capacity. I mean, we have the private accidental um, instance of that. I guess in the 1980s, where Ronald Reagan, the president of the United States, had an astrologer. It turned out, but this was back during a period where that could be. Astrology was somewhat more well well respected, um, especially in, in India, um, mm. and that could be like an official title or official role that you are, yes. like the astrologer that serves the the ruler. Yes. Okay. Um, so let's see. So this provides a nice transition into talking about our main subject and the main question most people having this probably have, which is what is Tajika astrology. Um, and and how do we define that? It's it's basically a, a tradition of astrology, and and part of how you define it in the introduction to your book is by defining three different eras in the history of astrology in India, essentially, right? Yes. Okay. So you want what me are to those? Talk about that <laughs> yeah. What are no, those okay. three? The, I guess the three are um, pre-horoscopic astrology and the indigenous astrology of India, especially focusing on the nakshatras. Then horoscopic astrology, which is when um, basically Greek astrology was transmitted from the Roman Empire to India and then synthesized with the indigenous Indian astrological traditions sometime in the first few centuries. And then finally, we have this third tradition, which is Tajika, which is Persian or Arabic astrology that got transmitted from the West to, to India. Yes. Um, is that controversial to talk? I mean, it's a little controversial even making that statement to some extent that there was some outside astrology that came into India. Well, controversial in in, in some company and, <laughs> and mm. not in other contexts. I mean, in academic circles, it's not at all controversial, uh, really. Um, um, 
It is. I mean, it, is is the idea that Tajika the, the idea that Tajika is a, a foreign type of astrology isn't even that controversial, though, is it? No, it's <clears throat> well. You in the twentieth century, you actually get people like Bivi Raman, who is the you know, one of the most important people in um, re in modernizing and, and revitalizing Indian astrology uh, in the twentieth century. He actually writes. Um, in one of his books, uh, or possibly more, but I remember one place uh, where he he says more or less that, uh, well, he denies that Tajika is is of non-Indian origin, and he says something along the lines that, well, it, it, it must have been Hindu to begin with or Indian to begin with, and then perhaps the Arabs borrowed it from India and they they added some things or some Arabic terminology, and then it came back, but it was it was Indian to begin with. Um, Excuse me. <clears throat> that's not that's not a position that is taken seriously at all. I think in in uh, academic circles because there's absolutely nothing to suggest it. No evidence to suggest that that's how it happened. Um, but you have to see these things in in the context of Indian nationalism, which. Uh, begins in the in the 19th century as a direct reaction against uh, colonial rule uh, so I, I can absolutely understand the uh, the impulses that that prompted um, and still prompt uh, some Indian scholars uh, more or less to deny that anything in, in Indian culture uh, was ever imported from outside India um, but it, it, that's a sort of knee-jerk nationalist reaction, and those are, are seldom very helpful in academic contexts. So we have to try to be dispassionate about these these things. Um, sure. Um, so in the in the efforts to push back against colonialism and and to shirk that off, there was almost maybe in some instances an overreaction of going too far and saying that all. The astrology um, originated in India or, or what yeah. have you, which is kind of something different cultures. It seems like do I've seen in the Hellenistic tradition you see references to this in in the Egyptian tradition and the Mesopotamian tradition, where it mm. seems like different cultures are always claiming that they were the ones that came up with astrology, and everyone else just ripped it off from them. Right. When in the ancient in the world, always whenever you put two astrologers in the same room together, they begin to talk and like trade. Information and, and techniques, and there's yes. always influence, sort of going back and forth. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So Tajika is one of the great instances where we can study this, though, because it's one of the more obvious instances where I think you said starting in probably around the 13th century, there were texts on medieval uh, Arabic astrology that were translated somehow into Sanskrit, and it created a new. Type of astrology that began being practiced in India and flourished for several centuries that we know today as Tajika. Yes, that's that's correct. Um, the texts were, I would say, <clears throat> not not exactly translated uh, verbatim. I mean, you you can you can compare this to the um, the transmission of um, Arabic language astrology to uh, Latin Europe, where you get translations that are very literal. Uh, I mean, sometimes they're so literal uh, that they're in rather strange Latin because the Latin is, is sort of mimicking Arabic 
turns of phrase and so on. So, um, <clears throat> um, so you, you get uh, very close Latin translations. Some of them were actually made uh, originally into um, Old Spanish, and then actually only after that were they translated into Latin. But that's that's by the way. Um, but in India, um, there were no no Arabic text that I know of was translated like that. Uh, but rather, they were epitomized or summarized. Uh, so what you get in Sanskrit is a very condensed version. Uh, they, they try to boil it down so the, the Sanskrit version will be much shorter and will be in verse, mm. which is the, the pretty much the standard for any any learned discipline, any branch of knowledge in India. Uh, you, you, any branch of knowledge you look at, you know, mathematics, cooking, whatever, medicine, uh, the texts are typically in verse or at least partly in verse. Uh, so, so it's in the form of like a poem. You could you could call it a poem. I, I mean, it's not it's not really it's not that poetic. I mean, so depending on the author, there are some authors are more. Some authors really are poetic. I mean, they they um, they choose very um, mellifluous um, ways of of framing things, but uh, but most of it is just you know it's it's verse. Okay, but it's not really poetry, but it's verse, and that's that's a that's been a tr tradition for many many centuries in India, and uh, I think it's partly <clears throat> partly to do with the strong oral tradition um, mm. that India has. It's much easier to memorize something in verse than just memorizing long prose passages. Okay, because mm. it has like a, a rhyme to it, or it has a certain fixed. Um, Sequence, not yeah, not rhymes, but but uh, a rhythm, uh, rhythm and uh, typically chanted. So, okay, so you one of the speculations that you've had is that you think to go in line with what you were saying was you think that what happened is that there was a medieval compilation of Arabic texts that at some point was was put together. So you have a bunch of different Arabic authors in one text and excerpts from it. And then you think that that compilation was translated sometime around the 13th century, and there's a specific early um, Tajika author who um, is often attributed some of the earliest works on this type of astrology on Tajika in Sanskrit that you think is maybe one of the earliest translators or earliest authors of this type of astrology. Yes, Samara, Samara Singha in the 13th, probably in the 13th century. Uh, he seems to have uh, written the the main work or works on Tajika that uh, that were then a sort of bottleneck that the whole tradition sort of came through, and he quotes or he doesn't quote as I as I explained he but he summarizes um, different. Uh, Different teachings that are recognizable enough that we we can trace them. We can say this is from Sal, this is from Omar, this is from whoever. And uh, but he never credits any of these people. He does credit one uh, 
person. He says, this is from the work of Kindi. <laughs> so the, the question was, of course, who, who is this Kindi? And Pingree's idea was that it was somehow um, uh, a version of the Persian or Arabic word Hindi or Al-Hindi, that is the Indian, um, which for various reasons is not very likely. It's not likely from a linguistic point of view because uh, an Arabic H doesn't normally become K in Sanskrit. Um, so it's much more likely that it's uh, Al-Kindi who becomes Kindi in Sanskrit. And um, also it seems a bit far-fetched that it would be an, someone called the Indian who is credited with these various um, non-Indian doctrines. Right. So you, you think that the early compilation of Arabic texts that was translated into Sanskrit, that it may have gotten attributed to Al-Kindi somehow? That's my idea, yeah. And that Samarasingha had this book that he thought was by someone called Kindi, that is Al-Kindi. Um, but uh, that was actually a compilation. Um, so as, as, as uh, I said, Sahel ibn Bishr is one of the, the main authorities, um, most important sources for Tajika, and he's never mentioned by name. Right, and, and that's one of the most interesting and the coolest pieces of your research that you've done so far is identifying where a bunch of, um, a large chunk of Tajika astrology comes from. You've been able to demonstrate um, through just doing parallel translations that large parts of it come directly from the work of the uh, 9th century astrologer Saul ibn Bishr, who, and especially his introduction to astrology, seems to have been one of the primary source that these later Tajika authors ended up drawing on through this Arabic uh, compilation that was translated into Sanskrit? Yes. Okay. And that was um, originally, did you first unveil that sort of discovery in that paper in 2011? I think it was titled um, Saul and the Tajik, Tajika Yogas, Indian Transformations of Arabic Astrology? Yeah. That, that paper was the outcome of uh, my, my good friend Ula uh, and myself sitting sitting together talking about astrology um, and, and reading, uh, as I recall, reading a bit of Nilakanta's um, introduction um, to Tajika in, in Sanskrit and uh, speculating on the origin of these strange-sounding <laughs> Sanskritized Arabic um, words. I mean, some of them are, are not really recognizable until you know where they come from. Then you can sort of see how, how they were transmuted. Um, Right. But the fact the fact that there was here, let me uh, show some of the the words. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so so basically, because in in Indian they'll define different planetary combinations and they'll use these different words, which um, for the video version I have over on the right the Tajika names, uh, but they don't really mean anything. They're just like technical terms in Sanskrit that that yes. don't otherwise mean anything. But when you compare them to the terms that Saul uses in Arabic, you realize that they're just largely transliterations of the exact Arabic terms in the yes, Sanskrit. Exactly. So, what are some examples? Well, uh, the ones we see here are, are Iqbal being becoming Ikavala, but now I'm giving it the, the classical Sanskrit 
pronunciation, mm-hmm. um, including the a uh, at the end. Mm-hmm. In by this time, by the time these terms were Sanskritized, um, this final uh, in Indian languages may already have begun to to fall away, the way it's done in in modern North Indian languages like Hindi today. Uh, it's similar to French, you know. In in French, uh, many words end with an e that is never pronounced. Okay, right? sure. It's a, a mute. So it's like that. So. Uh, even if the Sanskrit version says ikavala, it was probably pronounced something like ikval or ikbal because B and V are very similar. So they, they probably sounded more similar than they look on the page. So in some of these terms, so um, the Arabic itasal mm-hmm. is just, um, that's like an applying aspect, right? Yes. Okay, and then it's in in Sanskrit when they transliterated that. What did it become? It becomes itashala or itashal. Um, so itashal, itashal. Uh, that's close enough. But when you get to the more some of the more complicated um, uh, names like dupal um, kuba, which becomes which becomes dupali you know, it's. Mm. Um, it's quite um, changed to quite a, a degree. And um, it was when we um, talked about the fact that there were 16 of these uh, Tajika combinations or Tajika configurations, uh, I had not that long ago, I had been rereading uh, actually Ben Dykes's translation of Sal's Introduction to Astrology, which he translated um, from the Latin first, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I can't think came out in 2008. Yeah. And um, I, I remembered, well, Sal has a list of 16. Mm. So that's when we started comparing them. And, and then you uh, very quickly realized they were the same and that it, it, yes. it was not just this linguistic connection, which itself shows pretty much indisputably that this represents a translation from Arabic into Sanskrit. But even when you started translating the concepts themselves, sometimes some of Saul's um, chart examples were also embedded yes. in the Sanskrit texts. Yes. Okay. So, mm-hmm. and, and Saul Ibn Bishr, I did an episode um, on him just last year with Benjamin Dykes when his new mm-hmm. Arabic translation of the introduction and, and other texts came out. So he was a Ninth-century astrologer who wrote in Arabic, um, so he was one. Of, he then becomes one of the primary sources for Tajika astrology mm. um, because many of his planetary combinations, um, which are not just not just application, but other ones like um, transfer of light, I think is one of them. Right? Yes. Yes. Return of light. Um, we have com- committing strength. I mean, there are various ways of translating these, and and uh, Ben himself, I think, has has translated them slightly differently at different points in time. But um, you have, um, let me see. Well, you have being void of course, for instance. That's that's one, um, and um, uh, well, strength and weakness uh, and and. Uh, Committing strength and uh, like collection of light, Did collection that make it of through? light, exactly transfer of light, collection of light. So you have okay. these 
various things that 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 anyone uh, you mentioned William Lilly and anyone who's read Lilly or or you know that sort of early modern uh, Western books on on horror astrology will be familiar with many of these because they were very important in that kind of astrology. Right. So. Um, so, and, and that's partially because he's also drawing on that tradition that goes back to Saul, and Saul yes. is one of the probably the first or probably second generation, maybe, of astrologers writing in Arabic who are defining a lot of these concepts that are, are relatively new innovations that are getting used, especially in the context of horary and to a lesser extent also in, in natal and electional. Um, so, those techniques basically then get transmitted to India and also start being used there in this branch of astrology. Um, one of the things that this branch though focuses on especially and seems to specialize in or came to specialize in in terms of Tajika astrology is annual astrology or making yearly predictions, especially through the solar return chart. And that seems to be the main thing that sort of sets it apart or makes it unique in some ways or, or attractive in some ways in Indian astrology, it seems like, right? Yes. Yes. I, I think that was that seems to be one of the main selling points. When you read um <clears throat> when you read Tajika authors um writing about you know, introducing Tajika, um very early, um several of them start telling you that this is the main thing this is this is the great thing about tajika that you can you can make annual predictions and very detailed sort of fine-grained predictions as compared to um what you might call mainstream or classical indian astrology uh, which has these blocks of time called dashas so planetary periods and they can of course be subdivided and theoretically you can subdivide them any number of times so you can go into sub 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 periods but it becomes very uh complicated complex mm. um so uh, as i said it's it's one of the main selling points of tajika and uh from some uh quotations that we find from samarasimha the earliest known uh, or one of the two earliest known Sanskrit authors on Tajika, uh, he seems to have um, said the same things. So they were probably all copying him. Um, okay, so, and, and yeah. so so part of the reason for this is that um, even though a large chunk of of Hellenistic astrology got transmitted to India sometime in the first few centuries CE, in this when it merged with the indigenous Indian astrology surrounding the nakshatras and and whatever else existed there up to that point, which is a little ambiguous, um, and created this new tradition of like mainstream horoscopic astrology in India, it seems like one of the things that didn't get transmitted was the idea of solar return charts, which are sort of referenced, but very infrequently, it seems like in Hellenistic astrology in passing. So I can mm. kind of see why maybe that didn't get transmitted. Um, but also the Time Lord technique, uh, known as annual perfections, it didn't seem like that. That didn't seem to show up in, um, at least in the Avanajatic. I don't. I don't think. Maybe did it show up in Prashra or other authors? Well, uh, I I do remember. That now the the, the Parashara Hora is that's a real can of worms. Okay, <laughs> dating that because there are there are wildly differing versions of that text. And uh, and it's a layered text. There's, some parts are obviously older than others. 
Mm. Um, but there is uh, there is a chapter, as I recall, um, towards the latter part, probably uh, a later one of the later chapters. I mean, later in in a historical sense um, uh, of that text that teaches a technique called the Sudarshana Chakra, uh, which is basically annual perfections. Uh, mm. Where you, you first of all, it says you draw up a round chart. Now, that's unusual in India. Okay. But so, but you draw draw up, um, and it's actually it's three concentric circles. Mm. Um, so uh, one for the ascendant, one for the sun, and one for the moon. Uh, and then you you move all those three uh, forward along along the zodiac by one sign per year. So that's that's annual perfection. So at least you know, it's a sort of rudimentary annual mm. perfection technique. So, uh, but how old that is in India, um, I couldn't say. Or you know, sure. it might have entered at a later time. Sure, but the the main point, I guess, is just that solar return doctrine doesn't show up in Indian astrology yeah. for the most part. And however, it was, it did become solar returns became a major part of. Medieval Western astrology in some of these Arabic authors, and that's part of what got transmitted. And so, the the prevalence or the popularity of Tajika probably partially derives from that it deals with this concept of solar return charts, and it tells you yes. both how to calculate them and then how to interpret them. And that's a large part of what this text that you translated deals with. Absolutely, it is. Uh, it starts off by by uh, giving you a few chapters on. Well, on basic technical concepts that are not part of pre-Islamic Indian astrology. So there's there's one explaining the uh, the dignities. That is those dignities that are different, <laughs> uh, that are not part of, of um, older Indian tradition. And then uh, one explaining the uh, the yogas, which is uh, this list of sixteen types of configurations that we already talked about. And there's a chapter on the the lots. But then it gets into annual astrology, and the rest of the book is about that specifically. Okay. Mm. So it's about solar. So it has solar returns, and then they integrate annual perfections into solar returns as well. You also mentioned the lots, which is mm. that was another concept that was interesting that didn't really get transmitted. It didn't seem like, for the most part, in the Avana Jataka or, or is a little mysteriously absent. But then the lots also are one of the major features that show up in in Tajika astrology. That was brought over from Arabic astrology. Yeah, there are a few things. Uh, I mean, it it does seem that, um, or it does seem likely that the original transmission of uh, Hellenistic or Greek language astrology to India um, was through one text. Uh, there was a, a sort of bottleneck text in that case as well. So it, it's maybe it's not that surprising that not every. Aspect of of um, Greek language astrology made it to India. Uh, not every text mentions every uh, doctrine. So, uh, right, as you say, the the, lot, the lots didn't make it. Um, annual uh, annual perfections and annual revolutions didn't make it. Uh, what we know as primary directions didn't make it. Sometimes called uh, Ben Dykes uh, likes to use the word distributions and. Uh, I think Schmidt liked to talk about circumambulations, but it's basically the same technique. Uh, but that that didn't make it 
either. Um, what makes you think that it was one single singular text in the in the first transmission? Is it due to things like the exaltation degree issue? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's one of the uh, one of the things. Yes, uh, and, and, and I, what's I'm, that briefly, just for people not familiar? Right. Um, okay. So so the. Uh, the exaltations of the planets um, are n- not just signs, but degrees, degrees within those signs, right? Mm-hmm. And the 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 standard Indian list of exaltation degrees is pretty much the same as the standard Greek list, except for two planets, that is the the Sun and Jupiter, um, <clears throat> and in both cases. Um, there are um, the difference. The differences could be uh, plausibly attributed to copying mistakes, right? And Pingree Pingree, said that, Pingree made the, that argument. Sorry, you were saying. So Pingree said that he thought because in in the Hellenistic tradition, Jupiter is exalted at fifteen degrees of Cancer, yes. but in the Indian tradition, it becomes five degrees of Cancer. Right. So Pingree argued that this could have happened just through a single. Numeral dropping out in the textual yeah. transmission, so that fifteen yes. becomes five, and the same thing happened with the sun, where the sun is uh, exalted in the Hellenistic tradition at like uh, what eighteen nineteen Nin- degrees, nineteen, yeah, nineteen um, Aries, but in the Indian tradition it becomes what ten? Ten. Okay. So and did because, you, because you thought the Greek that was a- way, the Greek way of writing this this number um, nineteen is that you you write the new the the letter that also signifies the number ten, and then you write the letter that also signifies the number number nine. Hmm. So if the second letter f- falls off, you're not left with a one; you're left with a ten. Okay. So and so you think that that's a plausible, from a textual, purely like Sanskrit and translation standpoint, you think that's a plausible argument? I think. I, I mean, it's it's not really a Sanskrit argument. It's a it's a Greek <laughs> mm. uh, philological argument, and I think it's it's very plausible. Uh, and of course, if if all Indian tradition has the same exaltation degrees, then it's it stands to reason that it, it's it's plausible that they all got it from the same, um, not just from the same text, but from the same copy. One original copy that contained both these mistakes, copying mistakes, mm. uh, and was then uh, copied and recopied, of course, into probably into into uh, a number of. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah. So Sorry. both of these then represent two different transmissions of astrology from the West to India, and then the subsequent reception of that, uh, like the first transmission being. Greek astrology into India and how that was received and adapted um, and changed in some ways in the first few centuries CE to create horoscopic astrology and the practice of um, studying nativities or birth charts in India. Mm. And then we get another transmission of that with um, Tajika and Arabic astrology being translated into Sanskrit uh, about a thousand years later, sometime around the 13th century. So, so to me, both of these are really interesting, just in terms of studying it, even from a purely historical standpoint, to see how d- astrologers from different backgrounds and cultures receive astrological systems that are different or foreign from what they're used to, and how they adapt them. And you, you made an interesting point in the introduction that the reception of Tajika 
is different because there was already several centuries of established um, astrological tradition in India up to that point. And so they viewed medieval Arabic astrology through the lens of the established astrological tradition up to mm. the 13th century. And that sometimes altered how they interpreted and sometimes misinterpreted different things when they were trying to understand what these Arabic authors were trying to say. That it was like a, I think you said it was like a distorting lens in some instances when they were trying to conceptualize certain doctrines. Yes, yes, I, I think that's, <clears throat> I think that's um, fair to say, and uh, we can, we know, or I think many of us know anyway from from experience that. Um, Sometimes it's an advantage when you try to, to to master a new subject. Sometimes sometimes it's an advantage to have some uh, knowledge of similar subjects, but sometimes they get in the way, and and we can right. see that, for instance, in modern astrologers who try to learn pre-modern astrology, and there are some things that you just need to unlearn. <laughs> You, right. you need to deprogram yourself, and it's that's easier said than done. Because sometimes you're taking for granted things that you don't realize yes. that you're taking for granted. Exactly. Exactly. Or, or for example, sometimes um, astrologers that go into like the academic study of astrology, um, sometimes that's an advantage that they know things and they approach it different than how an mm. academic that doesn't have any background or, or doesn't think that astrology is a legitimate phenomenon sometimes. They're being into astrology as an astrologer can be an asset in that context, but other times it can also shape and distort their perspective in studying the history of astrology and being objective about it. Yes, and of course, you know, in in <laughs> I'm a historian of religion. Uh, I see that sort of thing all the time. Uh, both both people being, um, you know, adherents or, or proponents of a religious tradition, or people being uh, very, you know, uh, opposed to it, like you know, um, a devout Christian studying Gnostic traditions, for instance, will <laughs> maybe <laughs> form a different opinion than than someone who is you know, more sympathetically um, disposed. Um, so right. uh, there was there was something I wanted to say. Uh, just a, some point you made. Yes, I just wanted briefly to to comment on this because now you you used the word Western a few times, and right? I, I try I try to be careful with that mm -hmm. uh, because obviously these traditions that came into India came from places to the west of India, right? <laughs> but they weren't necessarily Western in in you know, from our cultural point of view. I mean, they they came from Persia. Or areas that that we usually don't think about as the West or as representing Western cultures. They were Western with respect to India, but I, yeah. I actually like to make a, a threefold distinction. This is this is a bit of a hobby horse, but um, I, I I like to speak not just of Eastern and Western astrology, but of Middle astrology or Central astrology. So I think you know. Byzantine and Persian and Arabic language astrology, it's, it's not Eastern in the sense of being Indian, but it's not really Western either. So I, I think it, it's useful to have uh, somewhat more nuanced. Um, and, and also it might help a bit with this 
topic that we touched on at the beginning about people being very sensitive, uh, you know, from a sort of from sort of nationalist um, uh, feelings that you know, especially post-colonial in a post-colonial world, you know, the, some Indians really don't want to hear, uh, quite understandably, that everything came from the West. It might be a good point to to make then that we're not talking about the West as as a single monolithic uh, entity. Yeah, uh, it's more just um, geographically, like a, yes, yes. looking for a map really quickly to pull that up. But just that you have um, uh, uh, Persia, you have um, basically modern day Iran, and the Persian. Uh, sort of area, and then you have um, the sort of Arabic-speaking areas just to the yes. left of that, or to the the west of that, and then you have India and yeah. the continent continent of India just to the um, east of yes. Persia, and Persia acting as this middle ground and this intermediary, where for for thousands of years, um, sometimes astrology would travel back and forth, um, absolutely, either from East to west, or from west to east, and carry different doctrines, especially um, through the merchants and through the merchant class. Absolutely, it seemed like yeah. a few a few of the authors that you mentioned were part part of like a merchant class, and that may have been how they had access to some of these techniques and doctrines. Yes, yes. the uh, The part of India where Tajika seems to have begun uh, is in, in present day Gujarat, which is a western state of India. Uh, and it's more specifically, it's the uh, the peninsula that is called Saurashtra, which is like a, a, a sort of juts out into the. Um, uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> you're, you're pulling up a map. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's a map with just modern day Gujarat. Exactly. So this is over on the western coast of India, exactly. and it's on sort of on the border of of Pakistan and. So that's right in that area where, because right. I guess we have to remember that um, after the what the eighth century or seventh and eighth centuries, we have this explosion of the Islamic empire out of the Middle East <clears throat> that um, conquered lands all the way into parts of southern Europe and in, in mm. Spain and Portugal, as far as far west as there, and then as far east as like the northernmost portions of of India. Yes. So, and and eventually, of course, um, quite quite a, a bit to to the south of India as well. But but um, I mean, the the Mughal Empire was really was most of India. It was just a few uh, kingdoms, mostly in the south, that were not part of Mughal India at its height. Mm. Um, but the uh, so the the bit that that juts out. Um, to the the northwest of on the northwestern part of India, that that's uh, that was a very important center for trade. So all the way back to the seventh uh, um, or eighth uh, century, there were trade connections, and um, uh, and of course um, Persia had been uh, conquered by by the Muslims in six fifty one. So so. Already at that time, um, Islam was was being um, transmitted as well um, to some extent, and uh, with it Arabic language learning. 
Uh, and the the merchants, the Indian merchants were some of them were Hindus, some of them were Jains, uh, <clears throat> uh, but they would interact with these um, these people who were ethnically probably mostly Persians, but um, who brought with them, as I said, Arabic language learning, um, and. Um, uh, they acted these these Jains and these merchant caste Hindus acted as a sort of middleman between the the Muslims on the one hand and the Brahmins on the other hand because the 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 Brahmins in India were the um, intellectual majority you might say the uh, the majority of people writing uh, learned works in Sanskrit were Brahmins but Brahmins did not like to interact with people who were ritually impure, <laughs> uh, defiling. So uh, it seems that that it went sort of from the Muslims to the Jains and low, lower caste Hindus, and then from those Indian people to the Brahmin class. Um, another fact that was forgotten by Balabhadra's time, because Balabhadra... Uh, actually says that uh, Samarasinha, the earliest Indian author on Tajika, uh, or one of the earliest, uh, that he was a Brahmin. But Samarasinha himself describes his um, caste status. He says he was a Pragvarta and that was a non-Brahmin group. So Balabhadra was simply wrong, but he probably believed it uh, because he just took it for granted that anyone writing on astrology in Sanskrit is necessarily a Brahmin. Uh, and mostly that's the case, but not always. Okay, and um, and also a quick aside that's relevant here is we're talking about Persia. Uh, Tajika, I think you said in the introduction, actually means Persian, although in Sanskrit, although it's from a Persian word that means Arab. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a bit uh, ironic. So the there was there was this Arabic uh, tribe uh, that was called something like Tai. And uh, that became Tajik, Tajik or Tajik in Persian, uh, which was a word meaning Arab to them. But then uh, when the Indians took it over, they, they used it to mean Persians and Arabs un, uh, indiscriminately. And the, to, to the Indians, they were all Persians. So Tajika came to mean uh, Persian. There is, there is also a word uh, Parasi. Parsi, which means Persian. So there, the word Persian does exist in India, but Tajik is just another word for for the same thing. Okay, mm. so um, so we have this early text that's written on Tajika in like the 13th century, but then the most popular Tajika text was actually written a few centuries later um, in 1587 by Nilakantha, right? Mm, that's right. It's and, uh, it, it's the most popular uh, text today and has been for several centuries. So anytime somebody says like Tajika, that's the main name that everybody thinks of is yes. the Nilakanta text. Yes. If you go into any bookshop in India that specializes in astrology or any bookshop that, shop that specializes in Sanskrit texts, and you say, do you have any books on Tajika? They will typically, they will give you three or four different editions of Tajika's, uh, sorry, of Nilakanta's Tajika uh, Nilakanti, which is his his introduction to the subject. So that's the main text 
It's still the main textbook. Okay, but um, you decided not to try to tr translate that text, but instead to translate this text by Balabhadra, mm. who actually has an interesting connection. He's about a generation or two later, yes. um, because Balabhadra has an interesting connection to, to Nilakantha, which is that he, Balabhadra, studied under Nilakantha's younger brother. Yes, that's right, and <clears throat> and he does quote. I mean, the uh, the thing about this this book and this genre um, that that Balabhadra writes in, and what he writes is what is known as a nibandha, which is it just which is a uh, sort of meta commentary. Um, it's uh, it tries to summarize all of Tajika. Uh, and um, iron out any differences between authors and establish the, the definitive Tajika teachings on various topics. And in the process of doing that, he quotes lots and lots of passages from earlier authors. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I, I chose to, to work on this text, because you, you, get, uh, you get so many different authors from a, a period of you know, uh, more than 400 years, uh, authors from the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, uh, all quoted. Um, so you can see, although although Balabhadra is mostly viewing this synchronically, he's not making uh, any historical differences or saying well, this is how Tajika developed, but he's sort of taking it for granted that this is how it is and it hasn't changed. You know, this is there is one Tajika teaching and this is it. Uh, but uh, as a historian, you can look at it and and see, oh, here's a, a 13th century author who says this, but then this 15th century author says that, uh, and this is obviously how how things changed over time. Um, and you get quite a lot of Nilakantha, uh, especially uh, from uh, Balabhadra's book. I, I think he quotes several hundred. Verses from from Nilakantha, so so no need to translate Nilakantha separately. Sure, and I, I think you said that he quotes Balabhadra quotes from something like forty earlier works, and he's something constantly like that, yeah. quoting and sometimes um, comparing different authors and, and sometimes disagreeing with certain authors when they're contrasting um, how Tajika or certain doctrines in Tajika should be done. Yes, that's right. Okay, so it's a it's a comprehensive text. It ended up being like a thousand pages in the book itself. Um, yeah, the, or the, the book itself is a thousand pages long, um, and he actually completed it. You actually have the date of completion on the afternoon of Wednesday, the fourteenth of April, sixteen forty nine. Mm, that's right. Yeah, he he gives it <clears throat> um, most of the. Most of the times, uh, an author will just uh, write that this this was if they date it at all, they will just say, "Well, it was completed on such and such a day in such and such a month and year." But Balabhadra wants to show off, uh, so he makes a riddle out of it, a mathematical riddle, and takes the various components of the Indian calendar and describes how they relate to each other. You know, this is the square root of that, and. And this is that divided by such and such, and and you work it out, and <laughs> and then um, someone did work it out, uh, and um, 
and put it uh, in uh, explanatory numerals you know, next to the to the verse. Uh, unfortunately, they got it wrong. Mm. So uh, and Pingree uh, Pingree didn't try that that particular verse that gives the riddle is very badly preserved in the manuscript tradition. You really have to uh, take a number of different manuscripts and and, and um, compare them, and you have to make certain emendations. Um, and Pingree obviously didn't do that, but he just took the uh, the year as given at face value, uh, and that translates into 1629 uh, CE. Uh, but there are various reasons why that's not possible. And so when you actually look at it, it has to be 1649, so 20 years later. Okay. Yeah, I like that he put the date at the end in the form of a, a riddle and like a mathematical problem because mm. you have to remember that these uh, ancient these astrologers from centuries ago were not just astrologers, but they were also people that had to be skilled in in astronomy and in mathematics in order to do all these complex calculations in order to get the the charts that they were working with themselves. Very much so. Yes. Um, the um. Yeah, uh, trying to find a, um, uh, I'm trying to find a, a place here. Let, just give me half a second, and I'll see if I can can find this amusing um, uh, place where he, he praises his own mathematical abilities. Um, right. Thus, he says, persons such as myself. Who have received that knowledge from the illustrious Ramadevajna, sovereign of all mathematicians, can devise numerous particular methods. So that's that's in the um, context of explaining different ways of deriving the um, the time of the annual revolution. So mm -hmm. calculating the precise time for which to cast the chart. So he's he's very proud of his mathematical knowledge and and of being the student of this um, famous Ramadevajna. Um, so, uh, and he, he's not—he's not afraid of showing it. It's, it's very, in a way, it's—it's it's half endearing, half annoying. This this um, tendency to this boasting tendency that you tend to find in many of these uh, earlier authors, both Indian and European authors, they can be quite—you know—these were times when people were very proud. Of their superior knowledge, their superior learning, and not afraid of saying so. Yeah, well, it's part of his his lineage. He's telling you his lineage and the the um, good fortune he had to study with the teachers that he did. And in this case, actually, that's somewhat called for, like being in the lineage of Nilakantha and knowing that this guy is is what one generation removed from that. Even from our perspective, if you're approaching Tajika and um, Everyone says Nilkantha is the is the main guy for Tajika, and you say, "Well, who is Balabhadra?" And they say, "Well, Balabhadra studied under the brother of Nilakantha. Hmm. so that that does give him a sort of elevation in the eyes exactly, of an astrologer yeah. in some some ways. Hmm. That's right. Um, so, in terms of the um, the content of the text, um, first I wanted to show one of the for people watching the video version the um, an image you sent me. So this is like an actual image of. One of the um, pages or one of the manuscripts in mm. Sanskrit, right? That's right. This and is one of one of the more legible ones. 
more legible. Okay, because it's all written by hand. This is yes. not, you and know, this is uh, someone with good handwriting. Okay, they're, they're not all like this. <laughs> so one of your skills is not just learning to read Sanskrit, but you also have to learn how to read different handwriting styles and sort of decipher yeah. them. And that's very much learning by doing. Mm. And um, sometimes in this one, it has a, a diagram over on the right that's written in like red ink. Right. Is that how the diagrams would normally be displayed? Yes. There are some regional differences in how to draw horoscopes in, in, um, in India. Uh, and students of uh, medieval and early modern Western astrology um, will recognize this diamond shape chart. Mm -hmm. um, this, the, the only difference is that um, whereas uh, Western, in Western sources, uh, the first has is uh, the, the big diamond on the left, uh, because the idea is that you're looking towards the south, so you get the ascendant on the left. Mm -hmm. uh, here, here the ascendant is actually the big diamond at the top, because uh, Indian maps, exactly that one, because Indian maps are uh, drawn uh, as if you were looking towards the east. Mm -hmm. so, okay. so that's the first house, and then they go counterclockwise. Um, and they're, they're actually, you can see there are numbers uh, oh, yeah. in these One, squares. One, two, they, three. Exactly. Uh, and these, these are Indian numerals, of course, what we know as, we call our, our numerals Arabic numerals, but, uh, we, because we got them from the Arabs, right? Mm -hmm. But the Arabs got them from the Indians. So they're actually mm -hmm. Indian numerals. So some of these are quite recognizable. Two and three are very similar, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, but these are not actually the numbers of the houses. Um, they're the numbers of the signs. And in this case, they coincide because this is a chart with Aries rising. So the first sign is also in the first house. So Right, because that's one of the big differences here is even though mainstream Indian astrology that came from the Hellenistic tradition used um, whole sign houses, when they imported um, Arab, medieval Arabic astrology through Tajika, one of the things that they brought in was quadrant houses. And Balabhadra spends like a, a chapter explaining how to explain explaining how to calculate quadrant houses at one point, right? He does, but uh, it, it wasn't actually brought in uh, with Tajika. Um, it it existed prior to that in India, hmm. um, and. Even today, if you go to an Indian astrologer, uh, many of them will use whole sign houses. Mm. Uh, but most of them, or at least quite a few of them, I, I can't say most of them because I haven't done a, a statistical survey, but in my experience, many of them will, if they want more accuracy, cast quadrant houses as well. Now, okay. because in India, especially in the South, uh, the difference is generally quite small. Uh, but uh, I mean, I, I I was born in southern Sweden. Uh, that's already quite a high degree of distortion. It's fifty five degrees north. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife is from the north of Sweden. Was born at sixty four degrees north. So that's slightly below the polar circle. Right. So, so the houses we, start getting very distorted. Very distorted. And, yes. Okay. But in in India and especially in South India, where you are 
perhaps at 10 degrees north, you know, it's, it's not, it's no big deal. Um, this distortion of houses, but um, so similarly, I, I expect in Balabhadra's time, many people would, you know, for a rough overview, they would just use the signs as houses, but um, they also did know how to calculate quadrant houses. And um, uh, typically, they used what we know as porphyry cusps. Yeah, it seemed like he was just dividing the quadrants proportionally, which would be basically porphyry houses. Yes. But uh, in India, they're called Shripati, Shripati Bhava, Shripati houses, uh, after an 11th century author whose name was Shripati, who describes them in, in his work on uh, natal astrology. Uh, he, he was basically uh, an astronomer, or I think more of an astronomer than an astrologer, really. So he's very focused on, on calculations and, and things like that. And he wrote astronomical, purely astronomical works as well. Uh, but just because Shripati uh, is typically cited as the source, it doesn't mean that they weren't there before that. They may have been even earlier, but they're typically associated with him. I mean, it's the same, uh, same of course, in the uh, the Western tradition. We say porphyry houses, but they didn't come from porphyry, did they? I mean, they right. Uh, they're already described in Vedius Valens. Exactly. Who ascribes them to who? Orion. Yeah, some author named Orion who yes. doesn't survive outside of Valens, but exactly. if Valens is living in the um, second century, then Orion must have lived at least in the first century, so that's yeah. very early. Exactly. And another interesting point is that the way they use it in, in India, both Balabhadra, who's writing about Tajika, uh, and people who use uh, pre-Islamic Indian astrology, uh, they tend to use the cusps not as the beginning of the house, but as the midpoint of the house. Mm, and you... that is a very special so sort of approach that, as far as I understand, is also reported to have been used by a Hellenistic astrologer named Pancarius. Who's not, what, what, what do you mean by midpoint, or could you describe that? Yeah, it's uh, so you have you calculate the the twelve house cusps, mm -hmm. right? So, so the, the ascendant, the, the ascendant, yeah, please. The what the degree of the quadrant house cusp. Yes, the degree of the okay. quadrant house cusp, and then you calculate the distance between the twelfth cusp and the the ascendant. So the the point exactly in between those two cusps, that's the beginning of the first house. And the point exactly midway between the, the ascendant and the second house cusp is the beginning of the second house. So the cusp mm. will be the middle of the house, not the beginning of the house. Okay. And th that's a very uh, odd <laughs> uh, way of doing it. I mean, it's odd in the sense unusual. Mm. Uh, not, but, but apparently there was, I think it's Hephaestio, I'm, I'm, this may not be correct because I'm, I'm citing from memory. Someone, but someone mentions, and I think it is Hephaestia who mentions this method by another astrologer whose name was Pancarius. Okay. I mean, yeah, Hephaestia is the main source for Pancarius stuff. Although I do know in Olympiodorus, there's something almost like that where it gives like a, like a 15 degree range around cusps or around mm. the ascendant or something citing some other earlier author. 
Right. That, that was interesting. So where where does that come from, or where is that used? Yeah, that, that's that's a very good question. I mean, where does it come from? The, the Indians do it, but and Pankarius did it. You're saying that's it. general practice in India. General practice in uh, uh, the Indians who do the Indian astrologers who do quadrant houses do mm. it like that. Okay. Um, that's really interesting. And the other thing is that it seemed like Balabhadra was almost using the cusps as um, areas of, of power then if they're yes. not the starting points, they're focal points for exactly. certain houses. The closer the closer a planet is to the cusp, the more uh, the more it will affect that house. So that, okay. that's his idea. And then it, it may be you know before the cusp or after the cusp, um, it will be pro- proportionately weaker in influence. And, and is this because what term is being used for cusp? Is it's it's not kantaka, is it? No, it's not. It's not the the, um, the that would have been uh, interesting. Kantaka kantaka means a thorn or a, um, something sharp. Uh, so it's uh, it may or may not be. Um, Etymologically related to to uh, kentron in Greek, um, which was then also um, borrowed into Sanskrit as kendra. But um, no, the the word used is typically either spurta or spashta, both of which are properly adjectives, meaning precise or exact or clear. So so it's the precise point of the house. It's, it's okay. So they like use point. it as a noun, so the pinpoint. Pinpoint, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So let's see. Backing up, I wanted to talk a little bit about just the <clears throat> the chapter breakdown of the book because that actually gives you a good overview of how Tajika is usually presented, or at least how it's presented in this book on annual astrology. Um, so just looking at the PDF here, really quickly. Here's the title. And the table of contents. So it starts with the fundamentals of astrology and the annual revolution. And um, he does some defending different things like the practice uh, study of Tajika. But one of the things that's interesting is um, just a long discussion about calculating the time of the annual revolution, which is the solar return chart. And um, that's pretty much the first. It's just very basic stuff and, and some intro stuff about the signs of the zodiac and the planets. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it goes into aspects and dignities and different schemes for um, friendship and enmity between the planets, as well as the five dignity systems mm-hmm. um, and other concepts. So here we get into some of the discussions where on the one hand it's Similar and it's receiving certain concepts relatively faithfully from the Arabic medieval Arabic tradition, but in other instances there were some some issues and they ran into some translation possibly misunderstandings, such as um, with the concept of uh, dexter and sinister aspects, which is right and left sided aspects. The doctrine was there, but there was some sort of issue when they received it that you talk about in the introduction. Mm, that's right. So what happened with that? Um, right, so so they they uh, misinterpreted or interpreted or reinterpreted uh, this difference as having to do with above or below the horizon, which again may be to do with the fact that the uh, the Indian chart uh, shape, or at least the North Indian chart shape, which is this diamond shape that we looked at previously, has the first house at the top, 
um, which means that the right-hand side of the chart will basically be the houses that are above the horizon. And the left-hand side of the chart will be the houses below the horizon. So I think that's how the misunderstanding or the, the conflation of these two ideas came about. Got it. So in in medieval Arabic astrology, it's like an aspect on the left is that if you're looking at a planet, then any aspect it sends forward in zodiacal order is an aspect on the left, and any aspect it sends backwards in the order of the signs is an aspect on the right. But when they received this doctrine in Sanskrit, um, there was some sort of issue, and the way it's presented in this text from Balabhadra in the um, 17th century is that uh, if a planet is below the horizon and it casts an aspect to a planet above the horizon, that's referred to as, I think, a, a right-sided aspect, right? <laughs> I, to be to be to be honest, I've forgotten. <laughs> It's it's some time since I translated that, but it's yeah. Basically, that's the 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 misunderstanding is that it's supposed to be to do with with different directions, forwards or backwards along the zodiac, but they took it to mean above or below the horizon. Right, and and you can kind of see that, like you were explaining, I can see how that could happen, especially if because sometimes astrologers will use an example. To try to demonstrate that concept, but I, mm. in, in attempting to teach it to students, it's always one of the things that trips people up the most. So I'm almost not surprised at all that that there could be a misinterpretation mm. of this because it's very easy to to miss. Mm. But where maybe some astrologer tried to describe it by putting a planet on the ascendant and then talking about aspects um, downwards versus upwards, and maybe exactly. something like that yeah. was misinterpreted. Exactly. Yeah. And other things they misunderstood was to do with uh, the five dignities, uh, where they they really had a problem understanding uh, triplicities. Um, so they had domicile and exaltation, and those are largely the same. Yes, and then <clears throat> domiciles, uh, exaltations, and decans were already part of Indian astrology, but decans. Uh, even you know in in the the uh, the original reception of Greek language astrology, I think decans were misunderstood uh, because the the rulership scheme for the decans in Indian astrology actually has to do with the triplicities or with with, with signs that are uh, in a trinal relationship, hundred and twenty degree relationship with each other. Mm. So there there was like a conflation between triplicities and decans. I think so, and and then it got even more confused <laughs> in the transmission of Tajika, uh, and they they ended up by by again conflating decans and triplicities, uh, leaving one slot empty, so to speak, in the five dignity system, and uh, where they immediately put the Navamshas, the ninth parts, which are such an important part of uh, traditional Indian astrology. Um, so and and even some of the Arabic language authors uh, who were sources of Tajik astrology do mention the ninth parts, such as uh, Abu Ma'ashar. Uh, he mentions ninth parts, uh, not as part of the five dignities, but he mentions them. So, uh, well, it's uh, an easy thing, I suppose, to. Um, uh, to misunderstand. So 
um, they, they, they tried to um, uh, give the, uh, the Arabic language five dingtiskim, but it didn't, uh, it wasn't quite a faithful representation. Sure. Um, they did seem that I was interested. They got the, in Tajika, they got the terms or the bounds. And it's actually, except for a couple uh, differences that are relatively minor, it is the Egyptian terms or the Egyptian bounds that were used as the main set in in Hellenistic and medieval astrology. Yes, uh, there are there are two uh, sets of differences, as you say, uh, in in um, Gemini and uh Sagittarius I think where you know, the the uh, like the terms of Saturn and Mars are reversed or something like that I I don't recall it exactly but it's it's a fairly small discrepancy um and apart from that it's uh, it's the Egyptian terms yes so one last thing that makes this whole section really interesting and important when we're talking about the aspects is um, in earlier Indian astrology, after the transmission of horoscopic astrology to India, that's one of the things that was different right away is they had the special aspects of the planets and the aspect doctrine was just completely different mm. in Indian astrology from like the first century onward compared to Western astrology. Mm. But here in the Tajika tradition, they did start using and received the standard Western aspect doctrine, which was like the the conjunction, sextile, square, trine, and opposition, mm. with the same signs and the same degrees associated with those aspects. Mm, they did, yeah. Okay. So and that's how the how the original or the you know the the standard how the standard Indian idea of aspects came about. Um, I really have no idea. I mean, okay, I was going to ask you if you if you knew what the nobody <laughs> no, that, nobody has an answer for that. I've been no. wanting to find out the answer for that mm. for for many years, but so far no. nobody. It's, it's no, almost I like there I was don't think. I don't a, think there is. I mean, there, there's nothing on which to base an answer. I mean, I I think it's fairly clear that I mean the whole concept of aspect is the same. The the idea that planets in certain sign relationships to each other can see each other. Right, I mean, and they, what's they, the Vedic term? It's like drishti. Yeah, the, the Sanskrit term is drishti, or, or actually, there are several words for for seeing that are used, but drishti is the most uh, common one, mm -hmm. and just mean means um, uh, glance or a look. Okay. So, um, so the that uh, the idea as such was was taken over from. Greek language astrology, I don't think there can be any doubt, but somehow something was uh, understood. Uh, so, sorry, it was mi misunderstood to quite a, uh, a grave, gravely misunderstood. Uh, but exactly how that came about, we don't know. I, I think we would need to uh, have, the, if there was one original, as I suspect, but obviously, I don't know. But if there was one original Greek language text through which horoscopic astrology was transmitted to India, we would need to have that text <laughs> in order to uh, to see what it was, how the the, the aspect doctrine was uh, formulated, and what might have been misunderstood. Uh, but as far as I know, that text doesn't 
exist. We don't know what text it was or where it was written or by whom or, you know, we can just deduce that there must have been a Greek language text. Do you not think that the Avnajatika was that text, or you think that the Avnajatika was a later generation of that that was removed rather than being the original? The Yavanajataka is is a Sanskrit text, of course. So, <clears throat> uh, so I think the I, I'm this paper of mine, a very short paper of mine, that is um, just in in the pipeline right now. It will probably be out in in a couple of weeks. In the um, uh, history of the history of science in sorry history of science in South Asia, yeah which is an open access journal, so anyone can read it online once it's published. Mm-hmm. Um, this paper of mine will deal um, especially with the, um, the doctrine of exaltations. But it discusses um, why I think there was uh, um, a bottleneck text, as I say, in Greek. Uh, the Yavana Jataka, obviously, is not in Greek. It's in Sanskrit, so it's, it's not the bottleneck. And personally, I don't think, I think the Vridha Yavanajataka by Minaraja is probably older than the Yavanajataka by Spurjidvacha, mm. um, which Pingri Thorpe was the oldest one. But um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's good enough. Um, so let's see, going back to aspects, yeah, that's a whole can of worms, but it's just interesting that then mm. the Western is aspect doctrine shows up relatively faithfully here in mm-hmm. Tajika, and that's one mm-hmm. of the things then that sets it apart from mainstream Indian astrology, but then one of the things that makes it perhaps different or, or unique in some way. Um, let's see, elsewhere in the third chapter, it goes into the 16 configurations and starts talking about the different orbs for planetary aspects and the the periods in which the planets come into orb of being in an aspect with each other, move out of it, and then it goes into the 16 different configurations. And These are the ones we were talking about earlier that are all basically translated from Saul and yes. in most most instances relatively faithfully, although in some instances there were some- There were a few very- that were misunderstood, especially okay. the, the uh, what is known in Arabic as Kabul, that is reception. Which yeah, became that, Kam, Kambula in Sanskrit, and it's, it, it was probably along the lines that you you were mentioning before. Someone someone gives an example, and because Sal in in explaining reception, he has these uh, examples using the moon. He says as if the moon were in uh, I don't remember now, but moon were in Aries uh, together with Mars. Then Mars would receive the moon, so like that. And from this, the Tajika authors uh, deduce that the what they call the Kambul is a sort of three-planet configuration that involves two two planets and the moon. Uh, so the moon is involved in all that. So they they really uh, misunderstood the reception doctrine. Yeah, that was because. One of my motivations and interests in looking into Tajika and my excitement in reading this translation of yours over the past couple of weeks has always been wanting to see if, by studying the transmission of Arabic astrology into Sanskrit, if that could help us to clarify some major debates that sometimes happen over little points of doctrine in medieval astrology and, and sometimes Hellenistic astrology. Um, but one of those was actually in the area of reception, where sometimes there's debates about 
reception and what is reception versus what is not in the Arabic tradition and, and textual debates that astrologers are having today as we recover some of those definitions. Um, but I was a little disappointed that reception was one of the ones <laughs> where it's just it's just way completely different from yes. the medieval Arabic tradition where there were, there was some kind of misinterpretation that happened. Yeah, no, I think I think it's I think it's fair to say that they 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 botched that one. That's <laughs> what are the ones that are just exactly the same in terms of these sixteen um, configurations? Mm. I think one of the first ones was it's a sala, which is just an applying aspect, yeah. right? Yeah, I think they application application and separation. I think they they got um, pretty uh, pretty much right and. Um, uh, let me just see if I can bring up the um, the list here. Um, as you said, it's a long text. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm just page, looking. Through. What page are you looking at? Um, uh, well, for the table of contents, it's just like. Oh yeah, yeah. But I thought you might be looking at the um, the actual. Uh, let's just look at the table of contents. <laughs> okay, let's make it easy. <laughs> All right. So, um, so going from memory, the the um, um, uh, the application and separation, uh, translation uh, of light, they got right, or transfer which, of light. Uh, which one is that in the Sanskrit? Uh, nakta. Nakta. Okay. Yeah, uh, which is nakul in Arabic, uh, but they. They slightly misunderstood the what they call the yamaya, that is the collection of light. Um, um, that is, they didn't understand uh, about collection of light. Properly speaking, that is in the Arabic language texts, is when two planets both apply to a third planet that is slower than both of them. Mm -hmm. But in in um, in the Tajika texts, is treated as Similar to to the um, uh, transfer of light, uh, in the sense that the slowest planet is supposed to be the middle one. So, so like you have uh, Venus at eight degrees, uh, Jupiter at twelve degrees, and Mars at sixteen degrees, for instance. So, okay. um, so they they got that wrong. Um, and with transfer of light, you said that was exactly the same in the Arabic yeah, that, and the Tajik tradition. Yes, that so one they like got right. A faster moving planet like the moon. You have two planets that are your primary significators, but they're let's say not aspecting each other. Let's say they're mm -hmm. in aversion, but then you have a third faster moving planet that mm. separates from one and then applies to another. So it, it transfers or connects the light between the two. Yes, and that's the same in in Tajika. Yeah, it is. Okay, so um, just briefly, I think they they got the. Um, um, uh, void of course that is kalasara that they um, uh, they got right and I think uh, also more or less the radda that is the return of light. What is uh, um, that's actually an interesting one with the void of course. So how did they conceptualize that? Because that is actually a modern debate where there's yeah. Two, when two I say they got it right, I I, I mean they uh, what they say is found in at least some, some of the. <laughs> texts uh, 
the, the, the texts do define it slightly differently, but, um, okay. Uh, I don't want to get you, get you in trouble, but how does Balabhadra, <laughs> if you, if you recall, how does he define, um, um, I don't, I don't actually recall it, uh, verbatim, but I can, I can look it up. Um, okay. So, um, Let's yeah, see. I'm looking really quickly. So, what is the Sanskrit name for that again? Kalasara. Kalasara. Yeah, it's uh, again. This is um, so. This will be a good Arabic. example for how the text goes. Um, so it says because he he usually opens and he has an introduction, but then immediately he starts quoting earlier authors, earlier Tajika authors, in order to define the concept. Yeah. So he says um, next next to the color, or, or maybe you want to read it because you're going to pronounce it better than I. <laughs> I can, I I can do that. I just uh, as we were talking, I forgot which page I was looking for. So three three one, right? Uh, yeah, page three thirty one. Uh, and um, uh, let's see. There it is. Yeah. So next to the Kalasara, and Yadava states the definition of that configuration. It says, if the moon traversing a path of no aspect with either of the two planets, that is the two other significators, makes neither a mutashila, that's another uh, Sanskritized Arabic word, mutasil, that is uh, application, makes neither a mutashila nor a joining, then a kalasara comes to be, destroying the matter sort. Now this is interesting because he he makes a distinction here between the uh, the word for uh, application for which he uses this arabic word sanskritized arabic mm-hmm. and something which he calls adjoining samyuti mm. for which he uses a, a proper sanskrit word so uh he's making some sort of distinction but he doesn't say exactly what that distinction consists of and and uh, i have a footnote about that but um I can only speculate. So, uh, but it's it's. I mean, uh, it's the moon being on an empty path, as they say, having having no uh, aspect with uh, either planet concerned. So um, that's how he defines it. So that's sure. That I think is fairly correct. Yeah, I mean, the, there's a debate about um, like people interpreting Lily and whether the sign boundary matters or not, yes. and uh, things like that. That's still yeah. ongoing with some of the Western astrologers, where one group says that a void of course moon is when, uh, let's say, just the moon for sake of argument, is when the moon makes completes its last aspect mm. and doesn't complete another applying aspect. Um, while it's still in the same sign that it's currently mm. traversing, so it usually only happens towards the end of the signs. Yes. Whereas um, some modern interpretations of Lily have said that he, the way that he's actually defining void of course is that the moon is not um, in the orb of an aspect anywhere in whatever the the agreed orb of the moon is, regardless of the sign boundary. Mm. Right. Well, uh, we don't get that sort of detail here, but but it's it's to do with the moon not forming an aspect. So that's that's the basic idea, of course. Uh, however, you define it exactly, and they get at least they get the basic idea right. And the same, it's the same with the return of light, and the two last configurations are uh, strength and weakness, um, which are basically just lists taken from Sal um, uh, of 
factors that will make a planet strong and factors that will make a planet weak. Uh, and those are more or less uh, correctly uh, given as well. Actually, they they um, they reproduce some things correctly from Sahel, but Sahel himself was um, mistaken or confused. Um, and sometimes those mistakes from Saul still then find their way into the Tajika tradition? Yes. <laughs> okay. So here's one, and this is what you're talking about. So he quotes an earlier author, and it says, um, if a planet is heliacally set, retrograde, conjunct, or aspected by malefics, occupying the 8th, 12th, or 6th house, placed in the 7th sign from its domicile, forming an itasala with a fallen planet, or in the mouth or tail of Rahu, that configuration is called darufa. Yeah, which is doof in Arabic, so weakness. Weakness, okay. And uh, one of the th things I like, I just did an episode with Ben Dykes about the origins of the concept of detriment, and here we can see Saul's definition of starting to use the concept or integrate the concept of detriment sort of gradually into the tradition, finding its way in as well when it says, placed in the seventh sign from its domicile as being a problematic factor because that's one of the things that's often noted is that in the early Hellenistic tradition, they didn't usually define, they'll say like domicile, exaltation, fall, and then they don't usually mention detriment. And it's not until later, until you get to Rhetorius, that suddenly we see it elevated so that detriment is mentioned more frequently. And similarly, in the earlier Indian tradition, it seems like they don't usually define detriment as well. No, right? it's it's never never mentioned as far as I know. But it's it's given here. But it's not it's not given in the um, in the early chapters of you know defining the uh, the dignities and things like that. Right. You know, in the chapter on dignities, um, he gives the exaltations, and then he also gives the uh, the signs of fall as mm -hmm. as the you know uh, uh, corollary of of that. Uh, but he doesn't do the same for the domiciles. He doesn't say these are the domiciles, and then the signs opposite would be the detriment. He doesn't mention that at all. It, what we know is detriment only occurs here in this list. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it's not um, as as uh, I listened to part of that podcast. I haven't haven't heard the whole thing, but uh, I remember Ben saying saying it was not symmetrical, and I would say it's it's the same. Uh, in Tajika texts, it's there, but it's not symmetrical, uh, like exaltation and fall. Right. So, as part of that continuing lineage of yeah. Saul's text and and its influences in the not just in the Western tradition through later authors like Banati or Lilly, but now here in the Indian tradition, mm. passing on some of the same doctrines. Mm. So, okay. So, going back to um, the chapter. So that's. Chapter three on the sixteen configurations. Chapter four is on the samhas, which are the the lots or the yes. so-called Arabic parts. Yes. So again, and, it's an Arabic word sam, which just means lot. Okay. And mm. you have a funny subtitle somewhere early in here that I laughed at, where it says, "I think you, this is your mm. subtitle, but it says calculating yes. the samha, the lot of fortune, conflicting opinions, which is." Mm. One of the in the Western tradition, uh, long-standing disputes and sort of arguments occasionally as well. Mm. But it seems like what was the conflicting opinion? It seems like there were some questions because it seemed like sect is one of the doctrines. There was a lot of um, lack of clarity about that in the Tajika tradition, and that may mm. have affected some of the the 
the calculations for the lots as well, or was it some yes. a different issue? I mean, sect is obviously uh, a large part of how, how lots are calculated because many of them are reversed at night. Mm-hmm. So what, the standard definition that you that you give is the diurnal one, and then you say and and the reverse at night, mm-hmm. um, and that's part of of many of the lots uh, given in Tajik texts as well. And sect also comes up implicitly in some other considerations, such as um, I think the discussion of the joys of the planets and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it's never explicitly defined. They don't have a word for it. They don't say, "Oh, and there is the concept of sect." Mm. Uh, that that never comes up, and they they never say, you know, when discussing the planets, they never say this planet is diurnal, this planet is is nocturnal. So it seems that they they didn't really understand the um, that that this was a sort of basic principle that runs through uh, the uh, the whole of both. Greek and, and Arabic language astrology. Mm. Uh, but it was just, you know, it, it pops up now and then in, in various contexts. Um, but the, the main problem when it comes to calculating lots, it gets a bit technical. Basically, there are two ways given in, in what we, what is probably one of the two oldest surviving Tajika texts in Sanskrit. Um, Two different ways of calculating um, the lot is uh, any lot. Um, mm. Two different ways are described, and I think they are just uh, meant to be two two variants giving the same result. Um, but uh, it, it would get too technical just describing it here. People can read sure. about it. Are, are the calculations, do they result in the same? So are they using the same lot of fortune, let's say, in the Tajika tradition in terms of the end result as uh, Arabic medieval astrologer would be using? Yes, yes. yes. If, you okay. would, if, you, if you do it the way I think, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and some Tajika authors also explicitly think um, that the original Sans- Sanskrit sources should be understood. Uh, then you get exactly the same result as as a medieval uh, Western astrologer would. Um, <clears throat> but owing to this, the fact of there being two different calculation models, some people have, inclu- including Balabhadra, uh, have concluded that there are two different uh, ways of calculation that are meant to result in two different positions and it's to do with uh, whether the uh, the ascendant degree is uh, in a sign that falls somewhere between the two planets concerned or or not taking the shortest distance between the two uh, and um, so basically in some cases not in all cases but in some cases uh, calculating the lots the way Balabhadra wants to do will give a point that is exactly one sign away from what a, a medieval Western astrologer would get. Okay, so, so, so even there's in some... the calculation of the lots, there were some debates about in receiving the tradition about yes. how exactly it was supposed to be done. Yes, there is, and uh, the interesting thing is uh, Balabandra gets quite shirty uh, 
about people who don't agree with him. Okay. And he, he, um, he, he doesn't name names, <laughs> but he says that some people <laughs> introduce uh, invented readings of, of this uh, fundamental text. And some people here probably means uh, someone uh, called Vishwanatha, who was um, uh, a generation or so earlier than um, Balabhadra. Uh, and this, this Vishwanatha himself, um, interestingly, in, in the place where he discusses this, uh, he says um, that this idea about adding an extra sign in some cases he says, there's no statement in support of this notion found anywhere, nor in the school of the Yavanas. And the, the interesting question here is, what does he mean by in the school of the Yavanas? Uh, he doesn't mean the Greeks, because there are no Greek language texts mentioning the lots uh, that are known in India. Uh, and Yavanas, by this time, Vishwanatha was writing in the, in the early 17th century, by this time, it meant Muslims. Right. So Yavana, it just means like foreigner, but it's context-specific based on the time period. Yeah. Is that I, I, actually, accurate? Actually, it does mean, etymologically, it means Greek. It means Ionian. Okay. It's, it's the same word as Ionian. Hmm. Yavana, Yavanas. So, uh, so in the Yavanajataka, when they're using that term, it means Greek or yeah, basically means that, Greek? At, yes. At that time, you know, in, in the early centuries of the Common Era, it would mean a Greek-speaking person. Mm -hmm. But but in later eras, it mean, meant it still meant someone coming from that region, you know, up in the northwest. Mm. Only, you know, it, by by Balabhadra's time, the people up in the northwest didn't speak Greek anymore. They spoke Persian or Arabic. <laughs> okay. So um, so Yavana in uh, in Indian texts from this early modern period simply typically means Muslim. Uh, and the interesting, interesting thing is that this Vishwanatha, whom Balabhadra criticizes, or I think that's who he criticizes, um, he, he uh, refers to this school of the Yavanas, which might mean, I'm not sure, but, but it might mean that he actually um, was in contact with practicing Muslim astrologers. He knew what they were doing. Hmm. Because he says it's not anywhere in the Tajika texts, nor is it mentioned in the school of the Yavanas. So he, he makes a distinction there. And there were, of course, practicing uh, Muslim astrologers in India at the time. So he could easily, you know, if, if he just could overcome his Brahmin scruples, he could easily associate with these people and discuss astrology with them. And I think that might have been what he was doing. Okay, so that's a really interesting point then. So for Balabhadra, sometimes these are like textual issues because he's going through 40 different sources and he's sometimes seeing disagreements and he's trying to reconcile um, different sources and stuff sometimes for things where there's issues like calculating a lot of fortune and conflicting mm -hmm. calculations. Mm -hmm. But this wasn't, but in some instances, it's like, I don't know if he, he could have necessarily, but some astrologers in terms of Tajika. Could have ironed out some of these issues by interacting with um, Arabic-speaking astrologers during the same time period. Yes, it's a bit speculative, but uh, I think I think there's a fair likelihood that that some of them did. Yes. Okay. So, in terms of the 
lots, though, besides the lot of fortune. And, and that was interesting about the calculation, just because in the Western tradition, we of course historically there's different arguments in the Greek tradition and some of the later traditions about how to calculate it. And like Ptolemy says that you shouldn't reverse it for day and night charts, and Dorotheus reverses it for day and night charts, and different debates like that. Um, eventually, Balabhadra presents 50 lots, or there were 50 core lots. Do you know what the source of those lots were? <laughs> um, no. I, <clears throat> um, I did write uh, an article on uh, Samarasingha, this, this early 13th century, uh, or late 13th century, but early, comma, late <laughs> uh, 13th century author, um, uh, what he wrote on uh, natal astrology, um, and he has a chapter on the lots, and he gives um, 32, I think. And I actually had the assistance of uh, Levin de Laszlo um, in tracing uh, the origins of many of those, and, and it seems that at least some of them came from um, Abu Ma'ashar. Uh, but they seem to have been culled from different sources. And now... Um, there are an additional number of, of lots here. We get 50, and then, then he gives another 25 a little later in the same chapter. Uh, so they must have come from other Arabic language sources, and I, I don't know which ones. Okay. So, the, I mean, this is after, like, already in the, if the core Tajika text was written in like at least the 13th century or maybe the 13th century as late as the 13th century then that's already well after like Al Biruni's famous 11th century statement that the <laughs> the number of lots increased daily yeah. so so they could have literally come from anywhere at that point yes um okay so that's chap one chapter and then we're, you know at that point we're still getting through um Basic stuff, the the lots, but then eventually in chapter five, it gets to timing techniques, and it starts mm. talking about the concept of the ruler of the year, um, nice. and it in, and it um, introduces the concept of uh, annual perfections, basically, right? Mm. Yes, no, it's much more circumscribed in in the Tajika contexts. It's um, they don't use perfections as um, as a predictive technique, except simply to um, to identify the ruler of the year, and well, they they use they use the ruler of the perfected descendant, whether is whether they consider it the final ruler of the year or not. They have a more complex system of of defining the final ruler of the year, but um, but they don't they don't use it as um, it's not as versatile. Uh, a concept as it is in in the uh, Greek language or Arabic language tradition. Okay. Um, I, I just want to ask you here. Um, it's it's getting a bit dark here today. It's very cloudy. What if I turn on a light? Would that be better or worse? Uh, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. Good. I think that looks good. <laughs> good idea. Um, yeah. Sorry, we're going a little long because there's so much to discuss uh, with the. This is a big book. It is a big book, a lot of concepts, and we're talking, summarizing like an entire astrological tradition that lasted for almost a thousand years, or at least seven hundred years now. Yeah. Um, so they do the perfections. It's not necessarily like the domicile lord of the sign that it comes to, right? It seems like they have another system for determining, based on the perfection, like what planets you should pay attention to. 
Yeah, that's that's something that I've been hoping, you know, all the time I've been working with this. I, I've been hoping that I would eventually come across some explanation um, of where they got this. Because the, the process they give, it's actually similar to, somewhat similar to, to uh, the process of determining the high leg or determining the ruler of the nativity. It's, you, you have these different candidates and, and you have to decide based on different criteria, which is the strongest one. Right. It's almost like the Almutin or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. That, that sort of, of um, process. And the criteria they use are uh, very much uh, Persa-Arabic type criteria. So they use triplicity rulers and uh, you know, day and night um, difference between day and night that is sect and so on. So, so it's not that they uh, suddenly started uh, introducing pre-Islamic Indian astrological ideas, but it seems that they they got this from somewhere, uh, probably some some Persian or Arabic source. Whether they understood it correctly or not, but but there must be some sort of basis for this. But I haven't found it. In any of the uh, the Arabic language authors, we know, of course, I don't I don't read Arabic sources firsthand. I can read Latin translations, and of course, nowadays we have quite a few of them translated, thanks to Ben Dykes, into English. So they're they're much more accessible than they used to be. Um, used to be quite a drag having to <laughs> try to you know, read it in Latin, but. Um, uh, but I haven't found anyone who who gives a more complex system of finding the ruler of the year. They all just say, "Well, it's it's the rule, domicile ruler of the perfected ascendant." End of story. Mm. Um, except right. for Valence, of course. Who? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he gets a little yeah. complicated with his perfections yeah. method and spends like yes. a book uh, doing that. But at least the basic concept here of how you calculate. Initially, the perfected sign is relatively straightforward and the same and recognizable from Western astrology. Yes. Um, so uh, he quotes like that early 13th century source for it mm -hmm. initially, and it just says, dividing the total years elapsed from the nativity by 12, taking the remainder and counting from the ascendant, the sign where it finds its rest will be the muntha, munthaha, which is the perfected sign, yeah. basically. Yeah. That's again an Arabic word, muntaha. Yeah, so right. the, which is the um, the ending place or the resting place or something like that. So the place right. of completion, the point of termination, and the point so, of termination exactly. Yeah, which which I think is uh, quite recognizably um, an Arabic rendering of uh, the phrase that you find in the Tetra Biblos. Uh, mm -hmm. What Ptolemy says, it's it's the, he uses this. Um, Sinteliumenon, uh, zodion, I think. Uh, so the the the, ter the the sign being reached in completion, or something like that. Okay. So so, so, it's, so what we end up with is the perfected sign, and they and they mm -hmm. end up focusing on that a lot. Um, they also seem to focus a lot in this chapter on doing the solar return chart and looking at. Mm -hmm. What the rising sign is in the solar return chart, and yes. sometimes what the, what the ruler of that sign is, and what it's yes. doing. So they're exactly. they're trying to balance perfections and solar return charts as two of their main 
um, annual techniques, basically. Yes, and it seems that Abu Mashar is is a very uh, is perhaps the major source for the um, uh, uh, how to read the uh, uh, solar return chart, the annual annual revolution chart. Okay. Um, so is it largely? It's very similar then, or we're seeing a lot of relatively close similarities between. Yes, yes, quite a few. And I, I, um, I haven't uh, written as much about that as as I might have uh, if uh, Ben Dykes's <laughs> translation of Abu Masha's huge work on this had come uh, had been published a couple of years earlier. But it it only came out. Uh, I think it even came out after I. Submitted the um, uh, the draft to the publisher or something like that. So yeah, it was just a, a year ago I interviewed yeah. him about that. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it takes a while to sometimes publish some of these academic oh, publications. Yeah. It's like a long process. It, it is, you know, you you uh, you submit it first of all. There's the uh, the what a friend taught me about the the ninety ninety rule. Which is applied to programming. It also applies, I can tell you, to philology. That is, the first ninety percent of the work takes ninety percent of the time, and the last ten percent of the work also takes ninety percent of the time. <laughs> okay, I like that. <laughs> so, uh-huh. um, so first of all, you're always, you know, way <laughs> uh, across the uh, after the deadline, and then once you submit it, it has to go out to uh, a reviewer, you know, some some external reviewer who will uh, read it through and and give it his or her stamp of approval. Say yes, this is this is a sound uh, scholarly translation and edition. And and of course, in my case, uh, the problem was it took them a number of months just finding. I I still don't know. At least I don't know officially. I have a pretty good guess, but I, I, I don't know officially. Who the reviewer was, but I know know that it took them, I think, four or five months to find someone who had the requisite knowledge of both Sanskrit and uh, astrological tradition, actually, to to review this sort of manuscript. So that's that's part of the problem. Pingree's dead, <laughs> and there right. aren't that many people around who who can do this. To so, check your work and and to give exactly. them the okay that it's okay to publish or to give you feedback of things that you need to fix or correct. Exactly, and then you know by the time uh, you get it back, you you usually have uh, because it, your life doesn't just sort of press pause, but <laughs> things continue to happen, and you have other commitments, and and then you have to you know, and you every time you open the damn thing, you you find. New errors, not necessarily things that the reviewer found, but just things that jump out at you. Uh, that you, you know, you've been reading this 20, 30 times before submitting it, and you never saw it, but now after submitting it, suddenly it jumps out at you, right. and you have to correct it. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. Now it's published. I'm not going to read it. <laughs> you know? Okay. Well, <laughs> let I, me. I, I don't want to sit here swearing. <laughs> Let me just briefly then uh, force you to read just a couple yeah, excerpts as fun. we f- finish up the table of contents. So after 
the ruler of the year and the solar return chart, um, there's a whole chapter on judging the 12 houses. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was really interesting to me because it goes through the significations of the houses, which are, are in the, the earlier Vedic tradition after the transmission of Hellenistic astrology, there's a lot of similarities with the significations of the houses from Greek astrology, but also there's a number of changes already mm -hmm. in the Indian tradition. But here, for the most part, we see significations of the houses that are are much more familiar from medieval Arabic astrology. So, um, okay. uh, with, with some changes, I mean, do you is it, do you agree with that, or is that accurate um, summary? I, I'd, I'd be um, I'd be interested to hear which because to me they they are most of them seem quite uh, similar to classical Indian. Uh, astrology, but uh, which which significations were you thinking of, in, especially that that are different in uh, in mainstream Indian astrology? Uh, so you're saying which you're talking about, like the Yavanajataka significations? Which ones are different? Okay, well, Yavanajataka, I didn't actually uh, make a, an in-depth study of, so I, I haven't memorized. But uh, yeah, I'm thinking of like Brahajataka or that that sort of standard. Uh, Indian works, but well, one of the things was just that are, that are different. Um, one of the conceptual structures they have that I don't know if is in Hellenistic is the idea of the upachaya houses. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. The upachaya and apachaya houses that that definitely is as an Indian uh, or is unique to Indian astrology, as far as I know. Yeah. Right. So that introduces some then changes, and the other thing that's a little different is they seem in the earlier tradition out of the Avnajataka and subsequent authors, it seems like they have half of the planetary joys where they associate some houses with the same planets. Like I want to say Jupiter with like the 11th or Saturn with the 12th, but then there's mm -hmm. other houses where there's different assignments that are not the same as in Hellenistic astrology. Okay. Um, I, don't, I don't recall that offhand, but maybe it's something that is peculiar to the Yavanajataka or, or um well but but anyway the 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 main significations such as body for the first house and and mm. wealth for the second house and siblings for the third house and i think that that's pretty consistent across um greek language and sanskrit language and arabic language uh, astrology as mm. far as, as far as i recall with sure. just a few a few differences some of which i've noted like um Friends, for instance, falling in the fourth house in Indian astrology. That's uh, that seems to be. I think that's a translation issue, actually. Right. So here's um, so quoting from Balabhadra quotes Sarasam Samha for significations of the houses, and it says first house body, and then it just goes through the twelfth houses. So second right. wealth, third siblings, fourth friends, fifth children, sixth enemies, seven wife. Eighth death, ninth piety, tenth action, eleventh gain, and twelfth loss. So those are very similar from the medieval Western tradition, especially in, in the Hellenistic tradition to some extent, except for the fourth house friends, right. where you have a really interesting footnote where you point out how this could be a translation issue. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Because the, so what was is, yeah the 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 word the word here the operative word is pandhu. Now, bandhu, um, it's it's related to the uh, etymologically related to to English words like to bind and a bond, uh, 
So someone you have a bond with. Now, the um, the uh, usual meaning of that is uh, a kinsman, a relative, someone you're related to by blood or by marriage or whatever. Uh, but in a secondary sense, it can mean friend. Uh, so I think that the the fourth has been uh, originally associated with uh, parents and ancestors uh, was somehow widened. Whether you know, uh, I don't I don't know whether that was done deliberately or, or as a sort of misunderstanding, just to include any kind of relative. Yeah, I could see how like kinsmen could become friends or. Either deliberately or not deliberately, as an accident. Um, so, so I, I think it went sort of parents and ancestors, kinsmen, friends. That makes sense. So um, the rest of this just has a lot of delineations. Especially this chapter has a lot of delineations for when the houses are activated in different contexts. Um, in the course of some of these techniques, either through the solar return chart or through the perfections, it seems like to some extent. Yes, is that right? Um, <clears throat> the um, uh, yeah, the the um, the results of the houses relative to the. Perfected ascendant. That is when the perfected ascendant falls in different houses. Um, I don't recall if that's in in the sixth chapter, or, or which is on uh, generally speaking on house results, or if it's in the fifth chapter, which is, which is generally speaking on the perfected ascendant. But it's it's there somewhere. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, you have it, it gets quite repetitive. <laughs> sure. All the, these these house delineations. Yeah, but some of it's pretty straightforward from yes. Western astrology as well. Um, so he's quoting an earlier author saying, mm -hmm. whatever house a planet rules the nativity, if it has authority in this year and is strong, mm -hmm. it makes the native attain the significations of that house. Um, or if in the year it aspects the house that it rules in the nativity. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's pretty good. Or it says, quotes another author saying, if the ruler of the ascendant is joined to the ruler of any house in that house, it always causes that house to prosper. Mm. But joined to the ruler of the eighth house in any house, it always causes the destruction of that house. Yes. Um, so various rules like that and various delineations for the different houses are given in this chapter. Mm. Um, eventually, in chapter seven, it goes into planetary periods, and I was curious: do these planetary periods have any parallel with ones that Western astrologers are familiar with? Well, uh, <clears throat> they fall. I'd, I'd say they generally fall into two main categories. Um, some of them are, uh, I think, um, garbled versions. I say uh, um, of procedures that are taken from um, Arabic language authors, uh, including um, Umar al-Tabari uh, and, uh, and also Abu Ma'ashar. Um, so these are things like, like the, um, uh, what I think Omar calls the, uh, the greater and lesser conditions, or that's how you can translate it anyway, which are different kinds of perfection. Uh, 
continuous perfections. Uh, the greater condition is a sort of, of uh, continuous perfection based on the natal chart, and the lesser condition is a sort of perfection based on the revolution chart. Um, and there are various techniques like that. And there, if you know these techniques to begin with, mm -hmm. then you can guess that that's where they're coming from. But um, they have been sort of scrambled in transmission. Uh, and I think one major reason for that is I, I actually, I've been meaning for some time to write write a paper specifically on these various um, time lord periods, um, as you might call them, um, in Tajika and, and you know, tracing their antecedents. Uh, I think one major um, point here is, um, as we were speaking about um, distorting lenses and, and the trouble of unlearning things, um, Indian astrology uh, has these blocks of time, these dashas. But what it doesn't have is the sort of, of um, prognostic technique that you find all the time in Greek language astrology and, and Arabic language astrology, which is based on a sort of motion, either a natural motion or a completely symbolic motion. But still, you have the idea that you take a point and you sort of let it loose to roam around the chart and it will you know, hit other points and, and form aspects and whatever. So like different directive directing or like progression techniques. Yes, directions, perfections, and so on. Um, and uh, that that idea of motion just isn't there. I mean, the Indian astrology does have transits, but apart from that, uh, these these uh, more or less symbolic motions don't seem to be there, and therefore they seem to have misunderstood um, some of these techniques annual um, predictive techniques that are in the Arabic language sources. So that's one category of, of uh, Tajika dashas or Tajika timing systems. And the other category is um, systems that are just taken from classical Indian astrology and simply adapted for annual use. So there's the, uh, the one that any student of Indian astrology today will, will know is the Vimshottari dasha. Mm. which is used to predict life events in, in Indian astrology. Uh, and it's a 120-year cycle. Uh, so they adapt that. So instead of 120 years, it completes in 360 days. Okay. So they so adapt it to an annual framework? Yes. Basically, just you, you just um, multiply the length of any dasha by three. So you get 360 instead of 120. And there are days instead of years. Uh, Got it. Right. So, so uh, there are a couple of systems like that, which you might call miniature Indian dashas, mm -hmm. which I think they they uh, you know started in introducing because they couldn't really make sense of the uh, the Arabic language systems. So in that so way. Tajika is much more of a um, alma uh, mixing together of like in indigenous, more indigenous Indian astrology up to that point and uh, Arabic, medieval Arabic astrology. Well, it, sp specifically in the uh, area of of uh, planetary periods within a year, that is okay. That that's where they really start 
introducing indigenous or, or pre-Islamic uh, ideas. That's the, the main area, I'd say. And is the Vimshudari Dasha when it in chapter seven it goes through and gives lots of delineations? Because I think mm-hmm. most of this text actually ends up being delineations of different yes. placements, different planetary placements. But when it gives um, subperiods for different planets like Mercury and Jupiter, is it giving them within the context of that um, miniaturized version of the Vimshudari Dasha system? Yes, some of them relate to that. Uh, it's called they they call it funnily they they call it by. Um, an Arabic term, they call it mudda, mudda dasha. Mudda just means period in Arabic. Mm. So mudda dasha means period, period. <laughs> You've got one, okay. one Arabic word for period and one Sanskrit word for period. So, um, but um, yeah, so, so there, are, there are some delineations relating to that. Okay. And then finally, the last chapter is on monthly and daily revolutions. And this yes. is an approach to casting um, like a monthly sort of solar return and a daily solar return chart, essentially. Yes, exactly. And and again, uh, to a large extent, um, based on Abu Ma'ashar's um, uh, techniques and ideas. Uh, Abu Ma'ashar has this um, this chapter where he discusses uh, monthly revolutions and and uh, different models of that. And he rejects some models, and he comes down in favor of a, a purely solar month, where the the monthly revolution is cast for the exact moment when the sun enters the degree, minute, and second that it had at the nativity, but in each of the twelve signs. So you get twelve solar months like that, and that is the also the kind of solar revolution that you find in in Balabhadra's work and in other Tajika texts. So I think that it's fairly clear they got that from Abu Ma'ashar. Um, so, uh, and they have the uh, the daily revolutions, which I don't recall if Abu Ma'ashar has, but uh, it might be that he does, uh, which again is the sun entering the same minute and second of arc that it had at birth, but in each of the 360 degrees of the zodiac. So it's not quite, it's not really daily. It's <laughs> There are 360 of them in a 365-day day year, but it's almost a daily one. Okay, interesting. Um, so then that becomes the final chapter. So this, so Tajika becomes really specialized, especially for making annual or yearly predictions, but then also um, it can also get applied to, or, or is applied to, horary astrology yes. as well as electional astrology, right? Electional, I'm not sure. Uh, horary and and annual predictions are the two main areas where it's um, it's used and has been used, as far as I know, for many centuries. And solar return charts isn't is the common word that's used for that. That's more common is varshapala or something yes, like that. Yes. Okay. In in you know with a classical Sanskrit pronunciation, varshapala, uh, varsha meaning a year and pala meaning fruit. In modern North Indian pronunciation, would be varshfal. Okay. So, but it's it's year fruit, the fruit of the year. That is the result of the year. Okay, and and so that pretty much then summarizes, at least in those chapters, this large um, what is it, seventeenth century work on Tajika astrology and the, and this approach to astrology, especially 
So really started probably around the 13th century and flourished for the next few centuries in India. Mm -hmm. um, and during that time, uh, from what I understand, sometimes you would have two astrologers in the court where there's like one astrologer that's doing Tajika and one that's doing more mainstream standardized Indian astrology. Is that true or have you heard of situations I, like I that? I've read of that. I've read of that. Uh, I'm not sure if it would be two Indian, that is, Brahmin astrologers, uh, or if it would be sort of one Indian Brahmin astrologer doing Indian astrology and then one Muslim astrologer doing Arabic language astrology. I couldn't say. Okay. Uh, Balabhadra obviously mastered both kinds of astrology because he wrote one huge <laughs> work on each. So this okay, was right. His... So he wrote one on Tajika, but then like a mm -hmm. decade later, he wrote one on mainstream natal Indian astrology. Yeah, five years later. Yeah, five years. Okay. Um, and we were talking about before this whether there's there is a partial translation of that, but it's not a full translation. No, that's right. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, great. So then, eventually, you said in the 17th century afterwards, maybe there was some pushback against Tajika due to um, like nationalism or something like that, so that maybe it was less permissible. Or what's the status of Tajika today? Well, today, uh, <clears throat> today it's fairly integrated. Um, Sorry, I have to give a slightly uh, long answer to that. I'll try to, to compress okay. it. But, but yeah, um, the the early Tajika authors um, seem not to have felt the need of defending um, writing on Tajika. They just said, "Here's an interesting thing. It's called Tajika." But then we can see that uh, as as the centuries progress. Uh, the Tajika authors seem to feel the need of actually defending um, themselves. Uh, and Balabhadra does the same. Is it permissible for a Brahmin to study this? I mean, it's Muslim science. Is it okay? If it is okay, why is it, is it okay? And, and uh, so he has uh, a, a section on apologetics, you might say. And that is probably because, um, well, the Muslim rule was expanding. The Mughal Empire was expanding, and people were feeling that this is sort of an alien power <laughs> to some extent, and and they needed to, as you say, push back uh, and and sort of defend their own um, sciences and their own intellectual culture. Um, so uh, that was the case uh, when Balabhadra was writing. But today, um, since the uh, the turn of the last century, that is late late nineteenth, early twentieth century, um, astrology in India has gone through um, quite radical changes. Uh, it was very much a, a tradition on the decline uh, in in the British Raj. Um, before the Theosophical Society set up their headquarters in South India, in uh, Chennai, uh, Madras, as it was called. And um, they were very interested in astrology. And they were interested in learning about Indian astrology and sort of um, picking out the good bits <laughs> and implementing those. And uh, as they did with, with uh, Indian religion and philosophy, uh, generally. 
so they got some pundits to translate some of the texts. And um, that in itself, before that, astrology in India tended to be practiced by specialized families. Uh, an astrologer was the son, because they were always men, was the son of another astrologer. So it ran in families, and these families preserved the, the knowledge and they preserved the texts. It was their intellectual property. And, and it was only accessible to people who either belonged to these families or were students of members of that family and who also knew Sanskrit. But as a result of these texts being translated into English, they suddenly became, they were translated and they were published. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were suddenly um, accessible not just to Westerners, to Europeans and Americans, but also to educated middle-class Indians who could read English, but who maybe didn't know Sanskrit. So these three things, the, the, um, uh, the interest of the Theosophical Society in having these texts translated, and the, uh, the printing press being introduced in the 19th century, and then the expansion of the railway in India, which meant that you know, railroads were being built, which meant that books and magazines could be transported across the country. These three things together uh, created a sort of revolution, uh, similar to the internet revolution, really. It was a, a new, new technological advances that led to a new intellectual climate. So suddenly, anyone could be an astrologer, you know, mm -hmm. just so by the books. <laughs> so, so there was an explosion of in the not just the popularity of astrology, but in terms of the accessibility of it, because also in terms of like I don't know where the caste system plays into this, but if you know in the earlier traditions, it's just being practiced and only being practiced and preserved by the higher caste. Yes, but then by all, Brahmins. All of a, yes, by Brahmins. But then all of a sudden, with the publication of some of these books, it's accessible to anybody. Yes, well, anybody who knows English. <laughs> so, of course, those would still often be upper caste people who had, had an, uh, an English education, but uh, it, you know, eventually it grew and um, people of different castes and not just, uh, not just the men, but women as well could read these books and magazines and, and learn about astrology. Uh, so it was a sort of democratization process, um, and all democratization processes have uh, flip sides. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but um, uh, so what, what happened was that uh, just as with the with internet publication, you know, um, uh, we, we spoke just now about the process of getting an academic work into print and, and someone having to give his or her stamp of approval. On the internet, you can just publish anything. Anyone can publish anything <laughs> on any mm -hmm. subject. Uh, you know, and it, it could be right or it could be wrong, and you just have to try to <laughs> sift it for yourself. Mm. And similarly, of course, with books on astrology, anyone can write a book in astrology. Who's going to uh, you know, stand? Uh, who's going to to um, what is the phrase in English? Um, like gate gatekeeper. Yes, or, um, I, um, 
Anyway, I dropped the, the, the particular expression I wanted, but, but who's going to ensure the quality of, of what you're writing? Sure. Uh, so it's sort of caveat emptor, you know, the buyer beware. <laughs> sure. Um, and, and still an emphasis the, yeah, on um, student-teacher relationships and lineages and things like that. And mm, um, That's still a selling point. <laughs> if someone... Okay. If someone says, look, I have this family connection, you know, mm. my ancestors were astrologers, then yeah, that, that gives them a few credibility points, certainly. Sure. Um, and, and then even in terms of accessibility, I know you, you wrote at one point in the introduction in terms of the number of manuscripts that you had access to to mm -hmm. compile the critical edition for this text, mm. that um, access to certain manuscripts in Indian libraries is sometimes restricted, especially for um, for foreigners or people that are trying to yes. just re read it from yes. outside of India? Yes. And that's not just astrological manuscripts. That's any kind of manuscripts. It's, uh, that's, that can be uh, a problem. Some, I mean, it's, it varies hugely. Um, it can be a problem, especially in some states of India where the government-run libraries. Uh, on the other hand, one of the, uh, one of the most incredible experiences I had in India, with regard to manuscripts, was visiting a small place, almost out in the jungle, <laughs> out in the countryside anyway. Um, a few, I, I don't remember, perhaps an hour or so outside of, of Ahmedabad. Ahmedabad is uh, the capital of Gujarat, this western state of India that we talked about. Um, it used to be uh, very much an industrial city. Um, but not so far outside, uh, but in the countryside, as I said, is, is a small place called Koba. And Koba is primarily, it's known for having this uh, institute that was set up by a Jain monk uh, who wanted to collect as many manuscripts as possible of traditional Indian learning, uh, collect them and preserve them and digitize them. Mm. So out out in the uh, jungle, uh, we visited this library, which, as it turns out, has it, it seems to be the largest collection of manuscripts anywhere in the world. I think it's three or four times the manuscript, the collection of manuscripts in the Vatican Library. Wow. It's huge. <laughs> it's it's out there in the in the country in, and. Uh, and I went through that catalog. They did have a digital digital catalog, and I found some manuscripts that I needed. And I, I said I, I'd very much like this and this and that. And they made a note of it. And I think two or three days later, um, the PDFs just appeared in my mailbox. <laughs> wow. Along with um, a very, very modest bill, you know, for... Mm -hmm for the uh, the scanning scanning charges and I think I pay them uh, three or four times what they asked it was still you know a very modest amount mm. uh, so they were incredibly helpful uh, incredibly nice and, and friendly and and really efficient and very high quality scans so you get places like that and then on the other hand you get people who are extremely obstructive you know librarians who seem to feel that it's their main duty in life to keep anyone from actually seeing the texts. <laughs> sure. That and drinking tea. 
So, so you, there's there's a whole you know, continuum of experiences between those two uh, poles. But um, yeah, so there, there there can be a problem of accessing texts. That's right. Okay. Um, so, um, so just some final things. I know we we're going way over time here, but mm-hmm. um, one of the things we've we've touched on a lot is you know the reception of per- Persian slash Arabic astro- medieval astrology mm-hmm. in India and in Sanskrit, and some of the ways in which it the techniques successfully made it through and are virtually the same, like with mm-hmm. the concept of the aspects or the idea of trans trans transfer of light uh, or other concepts like that. But we we've focused a lot on areas where there may have been like misinterpretations or they misunderstood a concept and it appears differently in the Indian tradition and. One of the reasons that this is interesting for me, and I, I hope we didn't, I hope I didn't put too much of a negative slant on it, is because it's instructive to me as an astrologer and as a sort of almost historian of astrology to some extent to see how other astrologers have received astrological traditions in the past and some mm-hmm. of the ways that they did a good job or some of the areas where there were pitfalls because I, I guarantee that astrologers in our time that are trying to recover older or ancient forms of astrology are making similar mistakes and similar mm. misinterpretations as they they genuinely try to struggle with reading some of these ancient texts and try mm. to understand and receive the doctrines that are contained in them. Mm. And I think um, studying Tajika is useful for that reason, partially as a, as a Western astrologer, because it might give you a heads up about um, things that you might want to be careful about when you you take for granted your own astrological tradition, and when you try to learn another tradition, and how you can sometimes maybe misunderstand things mm. just by taking certain things for granted. Absolutely, yeah. And those those kinds of misunderstanding typically show up, you know, after a generation or two. Um, they're mm. not not always immediately um, identifiable, even to to your colleagues or like that, because you tend to share the same preconceived notions. Uh, so that's that's always the the trouble. Just as you say, uh, it's um, you know if you know that you have certain ideas about things, then you can try to balance that. It's it's the things that. You're not aware of consciously the the uh, the things that are so completely obvious to you that you don't consider you know <laughs> that they might be uh, might be wrong or might be uh, context specific. Uh, those are the, the the things that will trip you up. Right, the thing that you're just just completely taking for granted. Yes. Um, yeah, those are the the hardest blind spots because mm. there, there's certainly areas where I know there's different passages that mm. uh, you know modern astrologers, contemporary astrologers like myself, are coming to different conclusions on where, mm. especially like the definition of um, maltreatment or affliction in Antiochus and Porphyry and uh, Schmidt and I had a different interpretation of. It, the text just says when a planet is in an adherence with a malefic, it is maltreated. And then there was a question of, well, does that mean that the planet has to apply to the malefic, or the malefic applies to the planet? And he came to one conclusion, and I came to another conclusion. Mm-hmm. Or Demetra, um, the, the end, the last clause of the maltreatment definition says if a planet is ruled by a poorly placed malefic, 
uh, that's in one of the bad houses, the sixth or the twelfth, then it is um, maltreated. And there is a question about whether that clause of being in the sixth or twelfth applied to the entire preceding paragraph or whether it was just part of the last clause. Mm. And mm. Demetra came to one, in, one interpretation of that in her book. And if you read my book, there was a different interpretation of it. So already in, in our time, we're having different traditions that are splitting off based on different interpretations of texts. Yeah. And we can see a very similar process here in the Tajika tradition with the reception of, of Arabic astrology. Mm. So um, yeah, well, um, thank you for uh, doing that work and making this text available. I'm still shocked that this is is freely available and that anybody <laughs> can go online onto the Brill website and just pull it up. I'll put a link to it in the description below this episode, uh, and you can download the PDF or mm. order the hardback version, um, which I, I think should be sent out soon. I ordered mine and I'm waiting for it. But mm. this seems like a great contribution both to um, understanding the history of of um, quote unquote Western astrology as well as the history of Indian astrology is mm. you seem like you're one of only the second you know major Western scholars that's done major work on the Tajika tradition, yes. sort of following in the footsteps of David Pingree, but also correcting some 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 of the things that he maybe missed mistook. No, Pingree Pingree didn't write very much at all on Tajika. I mean he he did of course he did a lot of of um, the hard groundwork of you know going through hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts in all all sorts of libraries both in india and and in the west and and making catalogs and so on um but he only actually published uh, i think a total of 15 pages on tajika um and before him there was albrecht weber in 1853 or so who published a fairly long paper uh, on the high and Aratna, actually, um, and um, and that was it. That's you know there was <laughs> one one paper in 1853, and then 15 pages by Pingree, and then nothing until I started writing on it. So yeah, not, and, and not already, a lot of work has been done. Already pretty quickly, you're able to correct some things where Pingree assumed that the 16. Uh, configurations were derived from. He assumed it was from Abu Mashar, but then you were mm. able to show that it was directly from the text of Saul mm. and other other work like that. Yes. Um, all right. So, if somebody wanted to um, follow in a similar foot similar footsteps in terms of the academic study of the history of astrology in the way that you have, what would you tell them, or what would you recommend? Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. I mean, <laughs> no, I, uh, let's. <laughs> there's the let's say there's the more let's say optimistic uh, yeah, okay. you know recommendation versus yeah. the more realistic. No, it's, it's I mean uh, of course if you want to do it, do it. I mean it's 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 a huge field. It's got far too few people in it. I mean it's it's uh, there's a lot of virgin territory here. You can you can pick and choose. You know there's there's, there's so much work to be done. So many texts in so like many a, languages. Like Sanskrit, especially, is the biggest area where there's a need yes. for translations and critical Absolutely. editions. Whereas, Absolutely. it's a like Greek is being done pretty well, both in critical editions as well as in translations. Latin, you know, Ben Dykes did a huge chunk of that, and now he's working on the Arabic. But Sanskrit, there's not as many people. It seems like doing no, work. It's the, Sanskrit is the one where almost. No one doing any work, but but still, you know, if you wanted to do 
Greek texts or Latin texts or Arabic texts, especially I think Arabic texts. There are even Ben Dykes, you know, only has 24 hours in a day. Uh, there's plenty to go around. Right. Uh, so any of those languages would be fine. Um, but no, I, I, <clears throat> I'm not you sure did if it I have the any history of yes. like religion and uh, as a religious mm. uh, studies. Yeah. That was your angle for it, right? Yes, it was and it is. But uh, but really, it's um, the the historical study of of astrology really covers so many things. It's it's uh, part history of religion, part history of science, and actually, many people who are in it come uh, from. Uh, from the point of view of of um, uh, aerial studies or, or you know classical studies or Arabic studies, uh, some are Arabists, some are, are classicists, some are historians of of science or of philosophy, and some are historians of religion. Um, and um, I'm not sure if any of those. Uh, I mean, in Indology. Very few people, if you wanted to work with with Sanskrit materials, uh, especially, especially on astrology, um, then, as we said, you know, the, there's a huge number of texts waiting for you, but not many people around who have done that sort of work. So, um, so don't expect to have um, hordes of of experts to guide you. <laughs> It's pretty much learning by doing. Yeah, you're basically the Indiana academic version of Indiana Jones um, at this <laughs> something point, like yeah. something like that. But but that it can be perhaps justified in the context, and that was one of the interesting things about your introduction was you justified it what you're doing within the context of not just history of science, which is usually the standpoint that most mm. scholars approach the study of history of astrology from, but from a history of religion standpoint mm. because of the overlap between. Religion and science that astrology uniquely represents. Yeah, not not sure about uniquely, but but certainly that astrology rep- represents. And I'd say it's not. Um, in in a sense, it's wrong even to call it an overlap because um, <clears throat> really the distinction that we have in in our society in our Western culture, especially, but we might say uh, world culture as well, uh, because it's. Because of the um, cultural imperialism of of the Western world, um, we um, we make this distinction very hard distinction between religion and science. It's not just a line dividing them; there's a chasm dividing them, uh, and um, and there's a chasm in most people's minds as well. Uh, where, you know, if you're a religious person. <laughs> Uh, at least you have you, you have a sort of religious part of your mind, and you have a science part of your mind, and you don't want to let the two parts interact too much because there will be a huge <laughs> internal conflict uh, of, of worldviews. Um, but this is actually a modern phenomenon; it's a post-Enlightenment era phenomenon. So what we're doing here is is we're taking a a very culture-specific uh, distinction. And projecting it backwards in history onto eras where there was no such distinction, and I think that's that's really I, I mentioned this briefly um, in the introduction to to the book, but I think this is part of what makes people so uncomfortable, especially in in academia, about astrology, 
that you can't put it neatly in one box, you know. Um, it's not science, it's not religion, it's, you know, so it's pseudoscience and we don't want to touch it. That's the, um, uh, yeah, that's the state of, of things generally. Yeah, and um, if you'll allow me, you wrote it just really beautifully in the introduction. If I just want to read this really oh, quick you. excerpt, because I love the way you articulated it, that you say, it is my contention that astrology belongs in our modern category of quote-unquote religion, the boundaries of which are more easily intuited than defined, first and foremost because of its preoccupation with themes long since abandoned by science and to some extent even by philosophy life as a meaningful narrative, fate and free will, man's place in the cosmos. Astrology may have been a science, uh, mathema in Greek, scientia in Latin, shastra in um, Sanskrit, and ilm in Arabic, as that concept was understood in the cultures where it took root, but it was a religious science. Its history is thus an integral part of the history of religion, and if our preconceived notions of religion are challenged by a religious practice that centers more around calculation than supplication, then I believe we should welcome that challenge, allowing it to inform and refine our understanding of the breadth of human religious activity and experience. Uh, so, sorry, that was a long paragraph, but I just thought that was really <laughs> brilliant. I love the way that you Thank articulated you. that and sort of defended um, what you were doing here. And I think that gives other. Um, People who may have similar interests or inclinations for study, a good path to follow in terms of maybe seeking out and following a similar path as you have, if not in the exact same way, in sort of a similar area in the future. So, um, yeah, thanks for articulating that. Um, all right. So, where what's next for you now that you've just finished translating a thousand-page book? Do you have any <laughs> other maybe like shorter books that you're working on, or <laughs> exactly something shorter for a lot more money? Right. Um, <laughs> I think it's the standard answer to that one. Uh, no, I, I, I do have an idea, um, but I'm looking for funding for it. Um, so I'm trying to, to find um, a good uh, funding body to, to put up the money for me to do that for three years or so. Um, uh, I want to do something that is not just on India, uh, but that actually touches on this particular, precisely this um, overlap between the the um, history of science and the history of religion. Um, I want to do something about the uh, prognostication of length of life, mm. um, which, as you know, of course, uh, and I'm sure many of your uh, viewers and listeners know, but for those who might not know, uh, used to be uh, prior to the 19th century or so, um, a very central part of astrology, of natal astrology. And it still is, in, for instance, in India, if you go to an Indian astrologer and you don't want him to tell you when you're going to die, you really, really have to tell him right at the beginning, please don't tell me when I'm going to die. Okay. I don't want to know. <laughs> because generally speaking, that's, that's, that is, in India, still one of the first things they will do. They will calculate your, the length of your life, uh, correctly or incorrectly, but they will do it, you know, uh, because it's it's part of the standard practice. And of course, Ptolemy says, quoting Petasiris, that it, it is the first thing you should do, because if you don't know how long a person is going to live, you can't make any predictions. 
Right. And there's no no sense in predicting great things for a person exactly. in their 60th year who isn't going to live to see 60. Exactly. So, uh, and and this is echoed again and again and again throughout astrological tradition in in all of the different areas. You know, Indian authors and Arabic authors and and so on. Um, and of course, that overlaps to a large extent with. Um, Things like medicine, and you know uh, whether we, we have we still have predictions, prediction models for the length of life today. I mean, insurance companies have them, um, but they're not astrological; they're based on on statistics. But still, I, you know, it it is an interesting question to me. Um, there's uh, this idea, or or rather complex of ideas. Is it the case that? A human being's length of life is predetermined or can be predicted in some way, um, and and uh, if so, you know how can it be predicted and and why in that particular way or in those particular ways. So I'd like to look at that um, based partly on the the oldest um, existing uh, Greek language sources, uh, and then I'd like to look at the two. Eastern, the easternmost and westernmost areas of, of um, transmission, that is India on the one hand and the Latin West on the other hand, um, with, of course, the, you know, the Persa-Arabic tradition being in between all of those. So um, <clears throat> to see how, how ideas around this have changed and developed and, and to what extent you know, they, they have remained the same, because there, I think there are elements there that have remained the same. So that would be a, a comparative study. It wouldn't be at all of the same. It wouldn't be of a single text, but it would be of many texts, but some of them pretty short ones or you know shorter chapters or, or sections of texts. Um, so in Greek, in Sanskrit, and in Latin. So that's what well, I like to do. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be really brilliant. I've held off Doing an episode, which I've been meaning to do with you on on uh, primary directions for many years, partially because of wanting to put off and not fully wanting to getting into the main application of that technique traditionally, <laughs> which was to the length of life treatment, yeah, which has yeah, been something I want to do at some point, but I wanted to do it very carefully and very deliberately. Um, but maybe at some point we could get together and, and talk about that if you do launch that that formal study, because I would like to discuss how that was used in the history of astrology and what role that that played at some point. So maybe I can have you back again once you're working on that to talk about that topic. Yeah, let's you know, hope hope that it comes off. <laughs> yeah, well, let's see see how it goes, but but keep me posted. In the meantime. Um, People can find out more information about your work on your your website, which is martinganston.com, right? Yes. Due for a uh, <laughs> re- reincarnation very soon. It's been more or less the same for about a decade and, and sadly neglected for the past five years or so because I've been too busy doing, well, this book among other things. But uh, I'm, I'm now working on a revamped version. So uh, where they will be uh, the plan is to have two sections, one academic and one astrological, so people can choose <laughs> whether they want to read about one or the other or both. 
Brilliant. Well, yeah, I think uh, spending most of the past decade working on translating a 400-year-old Sanskrit text is a reasonable excuse for not having kept your <laughs> website up to date with all the latest and greatest yeah. things in like mo mobile accessibility and, and everything else. But mm. um, yeah, so people should check that out. They should check out your book on primary directions as well, which we'll talk about again at some point. And they mm. should definitely check out this book, um, The Jewel of Annual Astrology, a parallel Sanskrit English critical edition of Balabhadra's Hayana Ratna. Um, thanks a lot. Oh, go ahead. Uh, uh, well, I'm just saying, uh, thinking now that you're playing things, uh, I do have a second book that is actually coming out more or less, well, very soon, which is okay. not not an academic work, but is for students of astrology, mm. uh, but with sort of a spin-off of, of this work, which is called Annual Predictive Techniques of the Greek, Arabic, and Indian astrologers. So it will be out sometime this year and is published by the Wessex Astrologer. Oh, well, yeah, that's an extremely good thing to know. So you have a, <laughs> you have a practical astrological technique uh, mm. textbook from Wessex, which is one of the foremost publishers on astrological text um, based in the UK right now. And it's going to be on annual techniques in the Western and quote unquote Eastern tradition. Yeah. And it's, you know, I can't give you a date, but it's, sometime this year, definitely. Okay, awesome. Well, yeah, that's exciting. I'll put a link to that whenever it comes out in the mm -hmm. description for this episode as well, and maybe have you back to talk about that and get into more practical details about annual annual astrology. Mm -hmm. Great. Great. All right. Well, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and thanks to all the patrons that support our work here, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Thanks to the patrons who helped to support the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, shout out to patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, Marin Altman, Thomas Miller, Bear River, Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marillot, Kate Pallada, and Christy Moe. As well as the AstroGold Astrology app, available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co. The production of this episode of the podcast was also supported by the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting an online astrology conference September 12th and 13th, 2020. You can find out more information about that at isar2020.org. And finally, also Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount on that software. For more information about how to become a patron of the Astrology Podcast and help support the production of future episodes while getting access to subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes or other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.